Good morning, happy Wednesday. Welcome to Adam versus the man. You made it. Another day, another dollar. Another dollar less for the American people at the expense of the American government. Oh, dude, I, I couldn't get that far. I couldn't get 30 seconds into the show without saying something bad about government. This is Adam versus the man, after all. Good morning, Brad and the Producers Club. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've got a great guest, Larry Sharp, coming up on top of the hour. We've got another interesting on-the-road version of Adam versus the man here. hope you don't hear our, our noisy neighbors next door too much during the show today. But we're going to have a lot of fun. We've got a lot of headlines. We got a great guest. We got comment Jim Freedom joining us from Phoenix. We got executive producer CJ Abernathy joining us from South Dakota. We've got Mercedes Amperjowski coming with us from Nebraska. And of course, our last core team member in Indiana, Marcus Bulis, who set up this wonderful interview with Larry Sharp today. And, you know, the, the, the theme of today's show swamped by a second wave of government. You know, there, there are a number of things I'm looking forward to talking about with Larry Sharp, but one being just a New York City resident, you know, what's going on in New York City right now? How, how are these curfews actually, just being able to talk to someone on the ground in New York City and get that direct perspective, and I think Larry Sharp is a great correspondent for Adam versus the Man right now to tell us about what's going on in the belly of the statist beast. It is something else, I gotta say. Thank you, dear. Uh, that's right, look at this, look at this. Coffee delivery on the road, I love it. I love you, baby. Mwah. Um, there's uh, the second wave of Corona that's hitting right now. It's not, oh, God, I, I said it. I, I, I said it wrong. Did you hear that? Did you hear what I just said? Second wave of Corona. It's not the second wave of Corona. It's the second wave of government. More, 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 more government. More rules, more regulations, more relevancy of coercion in your life, holding back humanity from its potential. Uh, our top story we're going to come back to in a few minutes. End of year means end of federal aid for millions of Americans. And, you know, one of the things I really appreciate, I got out this screen. I'm just teasing it. I'm just teasing it, CJ. Yeah, all right. <laughs> We're going to get to that. Uh, but, man, there's, a, you know, something we do with, with Adam versus the man in, 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 as a team. Uh, and I don't just mean our, our core team, but the producers club, the editorial team, of, of, of trying to get a handle on this and a better understanding of what's going on in the world, what's affecting our lives. So if you want to join us, check out AdamVersusTheMan.com. You can find the link to Patreon, or you go straight to Patreon.com slash AdamVersusTheMan if you want. You, of course, you can give us whatever you want. Uh, we, we accept donations in, in crypto, uh, metals, gold-plated babies, whatever is handy that you want to donate to support this show. We're totally cool with that. Um, okay, no one wants a children. But I, well, no, I guess I guess we can, we can monetize them too one way or another, right? We can we we can do something with that. Uh, so, but if you, <laughs> if you want to support Adam versus the Man on Patreon, if you can get us ten dollars a month, that gets you in our producers club chat. And baby, gold plated babies is a, is an Alex Jones reference. I'm making fun of Alex Jones. I'm not just. It's not just Adam's own horrible conversation by himself over here. There's there's a reference. Damn it! If you don't if you don't get it, that's your problem. Yeah. Okay. No, gold plated babies is, is like one of those famous. Alex, I guess I guess they really do need to. It's too esoteric of a reference for my audience. It did just seem weird, didn't it? Yeah, no, but gold-plated babies is like one of these Alex Jones. We've got the documents. They're making the frogs gay. Kind of kind of references. Um, you don't even know about the. All right, 
guess it's just I. Am I an Alex Jones fan? No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, but I, I, I like Alex Jones. I'm an appreciator of him. And uh, he's, he's made himself so juicy, so ripe for making fun of, for, for lampooning in, uh, in any kind of political conversation. So, anyway, another way, if you want to support the show, go to adaversestheman.com, check out the source CJ's put together. And uh, there's a lot of really cool merchandise there. Of course, you can also support our affiliate marketing program with Cigar Federation, CigarFederation.com. Check it out. Promo code ADAM10, A-D-A-M, all caps, one zero. Gives you 10% off your order there. So, uh, and then you can join us for Cigars and Sunsets Friday evening uh, exclusively on Twitter.com slash Adam Kokesh via Periscope. Oh, man. I do not. I do not envy. I see. I'm. I'm. I'm so grateful to have CJ and the team behind the scenes doing the technicals and the distributions. I can just focus on content every day. I guess they have. You know, we have people requesting to see us on BitChute. Do you guys want to see us on BitChute? You know, we need your help. We need people engaged to help beat the censors. And that's what, what's so awesome about the Producers Club is I get most of the links about the show. We get people wanting to step up and volunteer and take on these responsibilities and help us because right now. This is not, I mean, as much as I want to say this is a business and we're making money, uh, it's more a labor of love at this point. We're, you know, we're working at getting back to uh, a serious business because we know that the demand is out there. We know that when we were doing, uh, reaching a lot more people than a risk of demand, we didn't face the same hurdles in shadow banning and censorship. And, and those of us who are putting in the time and the effort now, whether it's, you know, as, as activists, as candidates, as organizers, whatever it is, as, as, as people helping make Adam versus the man happen or anybody else in independent media, just helping to get past this cloud of bullshit and lies, uh, we really do require your help. And one of the ways, last promo here, makethemdebate.com. Check it out. Mercedes would be very happy to have your help here as our debate manager making more debates happen. So let's get comment Jim Freedom up on stage here. And think, do we have do we have any worthwhile comments so early on in the show? Feels like an early morning. Feels like a good morning. How you doing, Jim? Very good morning. I'm doing wonderful. How you doing, Adam? Excellent. Excellent. Sipping coffee in Seattle. Hey, what are you gonna do? Walk down the street, get yourself a doobie. Yeah. And well, uh, you know, uh, you know, you're all stocked up. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm not going to stink up the hotel room, but I will. I will make a symbolic toke here to, to kick off the show. There you go. Well, while you do that, Zachary Taylor asks, "Okay, but in Alex Jones's defense, can you prove that the frogs are not turning gay?" <laughs> Actually, the thing about the frogs turning gay uh, on that particular subject, I'm actually with Alex on this one. Um, I think the gist of his story was that there was some kind of pollutant that was hormonally, chemically, whatever, affecting the frogs, and some of them were that, like, and it sounds funny, and that's what's the point of making fun of this, but uh, a lot of amphibians, but... <laughs> Thank you, CJ. All right, go ahead. CJ, go ahead and roll audio so people know what I'm talking about. frogs! Won't you fight for your life? Frogs, freaking frogs! I don't like a frog. 
Thank you, CJ. That's up. When, I guess when we get our studio built out, we're gonna have to set it up so that I can I can I can wave papers around and smack them on the desk like Alex Jones. But no, this the issue that he's calling attention is like, are they actually making the frogs gay or not? Like, is that unintentionally by pollution causing uh, you know, a lot of amphibians are sort of uh, gender amorphous or uh, gender flexible in the sense that they can actually like their their physiology. Like we, I don't know. Uh, this is me, like, going back to my six-year-old self geeking out on science shit. Can we do that for a minute? <laughs> like, I remember studying this stuff as a little kid, and, and there's, like, a, a, a moment you realize, like, that, that as, like, my body as a human being, like, we have a sense of, of the physical hardness and, and sort of permanence of our form of the body, whereas amphibian, like, you know, you don't just, like, grow another eye when you feel like it. You know, you study... You know, uh, flounders, the fish that are what, on, on the bottom of the ocean, and they have, they're born with eyes on both sides of their head, and then their eyes, like, shift, and they're both on one side so they can lay flat on the floor of, of the ocean. You're like, ooh, what the? It, 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 well, same thing with frogs and gen- genitals. You know, a lot of them actually do uh, a sort of gender, physical, I, I don't know what the, what the transmorphification, transgender, whatever. <laughs> Transition. They're transitioning. They're <laughs> Definitely. So, so if, if they're like actually making the frogs gay, um, I don't know. They're definitely fucking with the frogs, and I, and I gotta say, like, you know, congratulations to Alex Jones for making himself so ridiculous that he is uh, ridiculable that uh, people make remix videos, and now we're talking about pollution and frogs and, and how the new world order doesn't care about the environment. So, you know, good for you, Alex Jones. Yeah, I suppose I was gonna say I, I was I was wondering about how much it really matters if the what this what the frogs' sexual preference is. <laughs> <laughs> as long as they use the right bathrooms, <laughs> all this because yeah, I yeah. mentioned gold plated babies, and Sam was here to be like Adam, stop being weird. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't be a sadist. Says has anyone actually seen a frog? They haven't been reproducing. Now we have no frogs in Phoenix. Do you do the math. <laughs> it's their frog population control. Make them get no, yeah. frogs aren't real. They're like birds, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yep, uh, I think everybody's prep. It's kind of quiet in the comments today a little bit. Uh, Eric loves Alex Jones. I don't know if he's being sarcastic or it doesn't sound like it. he mm-hmm. likes him. He, he's I love grown, right? Of, I mean, like of, of all the powerful things. To hate, like, let's you want to get serious for a second. To hate about Alex Jones, right? Um, the sensationalism, the sort of low standard of intellectual integrity, the abandonment of freedom principles to become a Donald Trump supporter. Um, those are, those are like cool, pretty big negatives, right? It should be good enough, uh, right? <laughs> but I can, like, of all the people to love. I still have, like, I mean, I still love Alex Jones. Like, and I, I don't say this just with my, like, well, I love everybody. I love human beings. Therefore, if you're a human, I love you. You know, like, I'm, yeah, no, I mean, yes, that's, <laughs> I'm not I'm not totally ridiculing that. I do feel that. <laughs> but, uh, like, of all the people to, to love and appreciate, I, I think Alex Jones is actually pretty up there in, in terms of moving humanity forward and waking people up and getting people to think differently. Uh, you know, first of all, I think he's, I think he's an honest man. I think he's, uh, I, I think he's genuine. I think he's manipulated. Uh, you can't really get to his level without that. And, and I would point out that 
he got his major success in terrestrial radio. That means with permission of the gatekeepers. Uh, so he might even be a kind of controlled opposition in that sense. They didn't they didn't want Richard Gage. You know, we interviewed a couple months ago, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, representing the 9-11 Truth movement. They go, let's, let's get crazy Alex Jones to be the biggest name and the voice and to be the face of the 9-11 Truth movement so get, we, can, we can easily discredit it. But I, I like Alex. I love Alex Jones. He, he definitely rattled the cage early on, and there's, there's uh, probably many positives that did come out of it, regardless of, of what it is he actually said, you know, in his craziest moments, he did rattle the cage and say a lot of things that, like, I saw videos from him when, you know, a decade ago, probably, and it was, I agreed with a lot of things, like, well, yeah, that's true, you know, and then he'd say something else that, you know, he thinks we should do about it or something, or something about aliens or something, and it's like, it's almost entertaining to watch at best, you know, and then he's like, it's almost like, uh, like the the political comedians, you know what I mean? You, sometimes you know they're just ranting off and going crazy on a stint, but then next you know uh, show they'll they'll bring up something that actually makes a little bit of sense and make you think about something. And even if he has a stupid view on it, it makes you think about the idea that you can go research yourself, you know? So. Yeah, yeah. No, the the, the comedian like in, instead of being a, instead of being funny, Alex Jones is just fear porning, right? right. <clears throat> But then he he'll he'll go off and exaggerate stuff and Sandy Hook was all staged and you know I don't even care to weigh in on that bullshit one way or another but um yeah if he's doing that kind of stuff like a comedian like I don't really mean this but it's hilarious check it out like I don't really think this is true but check out this crazy scary possibility that's like yeah I'm geeking out over this geek out on it with me and then question and live differently and live better and in that sense Alex Jones. And and I, I would say even more so that the Infowars team as a whole has really been a huge force for good, you know, by any libertarian analysis of, you know, how do we need to change the conversation? You know, I, I'd rather be surrounded by people like Alex Jones than people like Dan Crenshaw, who I ran into on Twitter today because he got into a long back and forth with our friend, libertarian congressman Justin Amash. If you don't know Dan Crenshaw, he's the, uh, the pirate. <clears throat> Congressman, uh, you know, the, the veteran who's missing an eye, and uh, Crenshaw said something about uh, criticizing Trump's troop withdrawals. Like him, he's trying to be the new Mitch McConnell. Uh, and there, there, I mean, there are always assholes auditioning to be mouthpieces for the military-industrial complex, and and to hear them now saying, oh, we can't take back one-third of the troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's of, like, we covered this yesterday, but, uh, yeah, I, I had to point out for Crenshaw's benefit, because someone someone tagged me in this. Now i got to say, what did, I, what did I say again this morning on Twitter? Um, but someone tagged me in this, and this was actually like a really extensive back-and-forth between uh, Crenshaw and Amash, and at one point, point, Dan Crenshaw asks, immoral, question mark, based on, question mark, my friends risking their lives understand a basic truth that you refuse to. This enemy wants to kill us. Protecting America's flank is indeed moral, a basic duty of government, and yes, dangerous. Thankfully, we have people willing to take that risk when you won't. There's And there is so much propaganda. Like, I really want to take a minute here uh, to deconstruct this fear porn, uh, terrorism fear porn propaganda that is still being used 
to manipulate the American people, or at least try and, and to justify this standard of militarism. So instead of saying immoral based on question mark, you know, like he doesn't say that it's moral because we're defending ourselves, although I guess he could say he's trying to make that case. Uh, but, you know, I, I think back to, I mean, it's like, this is, this is such old shit. I mean, I did this for the Chris Kyle movie. You remember asking people, well, if Chris, Chris Kyle is a hero for defending this country. Okay, where was he? Oh, he was in Iraq. Uh, who, was, who was he fighting? Oh, people who were Iraqis. Who, and what were they? Oh, they were defending their country. So really, uh, they're the heroes by the standard. Of, and that would make Chris Kyle not a hero. If you, oh, oh. And, and, and just like a, a simple examination of this should be enough to get people to reject it. So, I mean, I hope... Just, just looking at this for a second, we can we can analyze this. But um, my friends risking their lives understand a basic truth that you refuse to. I, I'm, I'm going to go part by part, and we're going to deconstruct because there's so, like Dan Crenshaw is a really effective propagandist for imperialism, for the empire, for the stormtroopers, for the military-industrial complex, and he packs a lot of bullshit into this one tweet. So my friends risking their lives. He's invoking, you know, oh, my buddy's in the military. And it's like, oh, okay, because because they're risking their lives. It, it, that, therefore what? Therefore this is correct? Like, and you see, it's not, a, it's not an appeal to logic. It's not an appeal based on evidence or reason. It's, it's, it's an emotional appeal. It's don't forget there are men. There are rough men waiting to do violence against those who would do you harm, and that is why you can sleep safe at night in your bed. And it's like, that's not what this is. Uh, the truth that you refuse to, the enemy, this enemy wants to kill us. Now, the basic truth, oh, you just refuse to acknowledge the truth, is, is, is another sort of uh, intellectual bullying as opposed to an, an actual appeal to logic and reason. Um, now, this enemy wants to kill us. Well, which enemy? Which deep state-sponsored terrorist organization are you referring to to justify militarism this time? Right? I mean, Jim, what did, what did you hear? What, what were you told to be afraid of uh, back in your day in the Army? No, just, well, again, as it's noted, I'm pre-war. I'm pre-9-11, so it was oh, not really uh, drilling anything into us. It was, uh, you know, general uh, enemy combatant understanding. Drew uh, Drew Carey, former Marine reservist, likes to joke about his service as by by saying we kept the communists out of Cleveland in the eighties, and it's like that was. But but even for you in your era, you're a little later. There were there were boogeymen, and 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 what what bothers me about this so much, like intellectually, and you know, seeing the propaganda here, this enemy. Are, are we talking Al-Qaeda? Because Al-Qaeda's been raised again recently. Are we talking ISIS? Are we talking just general Muslim extremism? Are we, are we just supposed to be afraid of the Muzis because they're this enemy? And the wants-to-kill-us thing. Who's us? If, 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 if they want to kill members of Congress or, you know, Dan Cranshaw and the turd in his pocket, you know, hey, have at it. To liberate us. It's a lot like Donald Trump said about Iran. We need to liberate the Iranian people from their tyrannical government. Well, really, if terrorists came and killed every member of Congress, I mean, I hate to say Justin Amash is the one, the one good one there. Like, uh, well, you know, I think 
I think, I think Justin would. I think Justin would recognize the benefit of the sacrifice there. We, we you know, we, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, right? <laughs> yeah, we're gonna work in a Star Trek reference before we get to any headlines here, too. Um, but yeah, we, we, I, I think I think Justin and Wash would, would say that you know, and I don't I don't want to presume for Justin in case there are any terrorists watching taking notes. That, that, that someone like Amash who recognizes the evil of the foreign policy that is committed by people like Dan Crenshaw in the name of the American people and me, right, as I did and, and have renounced for my military service, but that if if we could take if, if we could end that racket, I mean, I would I would give my life if you said Adam, you got to die, but as a result, there's going to be no more American military wars from this corrupt military industrial complex killing us and people. I'd be like, yeah. I still believe in that. I still believe in that sacrifice. Um, you know, that, that, that ethos, that, that actual, you know, warrior spirit, not this fear mongering bullshit, but, uh, this, this enemy wants to kill us. And this is why in, in my response, I had to post my video, The Restraint of Muslims, and it's got a big warning on it, graphic violence, because it, it shows, you know, the Jordanian pilot being burned alive, but it, it's, it's got a lot of statistics that make it just overwhelmingly clear that the, the, we should be grateful for the restraint of Muslims, that so many in the Middle East have been killed by the U.S. military, and, and even if you give them credit for 9-11, which I don't, even if you give them credit for every single terrorist attack that's ever happened in the United States, the, the death count, uh, the, the, the body count, is a, a drop in the bucket like almost literally almost insignificant like even you want to talk about like 3,000 dead on 9-11 if you want if you want to give them credit for that I don't again can't but if you do it's you you you, and you want to go well geez what's what, where have more people died you've got to weigh that you know 3,000 and a few thousand others of everybody every American who's ever died in any kind of terrorist attack versus Every Muslim who's died as a result of American military invasion and occupation in the Middle East, like it's it's not it, it, it's it's absurd. It it, it is it, when you realize that, and you hear someone like Dan Crenshaw make the statement, "This enemy wants to kill us." It's fucking inhumane. You know, it, it's it's when you see. You know, it looks like two people fighting, but really it's one person just beating up on the other and, and, and a bully just beating up over and over and over and over again on their victim. And then the, uh, the, the victim of the bullying finally manages to, to, to land a little punch and push the bully back for a second. And then the bully convinces you, oh, yeah, see this guy, this guy I've, I've been beating up for hours. He just he wants to hurt me now. And, and falling for that. I don't think the American people are falling for this uh, attempt to so distort that perspective. So he goes on, protecting America's flank is indeed moral, a basic duty of government, and yes, dangerous. Well, first of all, protecting America's flank. Um, they don't hate us because we're free. I mean, this, this thing needs to be just... I, I mean, I don't hear it, but it's kind of like it needs to be pointed out as a premise of what he's saying here. Right, that this is a the terrorists are a threat to America's flank. No, they want to fight the military. They want to fight the government. They want to liberate their countries. They want to stop what what, what war crimes are being committed in the name of the American people. 
uh, basic duty of government. And again, this is this is so un-American. As the founders were uh, opposed to a standing army, they wanted a militia-based defense. So in and of itself, what, what, what Dan is advocating for here is socialization, socialism in the realm of defense. Uh, dangerous, yeah, of course it's dangerous, but if you're pointing that out, uh, that's not what's being debated here. It seems like an emotional field. Thankfully, we have people willing to take that risk when you won't. And it's like, oh, really, you're going to resort to that? That's, that's kind of like uh, non-military shame. Yeah, and Jim, we've talked about this. It's so important for people to get through. Like, no, you, you being in the military in and of itself makes you less of a warrior, not more of a warrior. Because you have you, a warrior being someone who is willing to put their lives on the line to defend people who can't defend themselves, to protect the innocent, to make those sacrifices necessary to protect people. Uh, whereas a, a soldier is someone who has volunteered to kill for politicians. And, and that's what being in the military is more about than, than truly being a warrior in that sense. I think Dan Crenshaw here is, uh, is the, the pitiful, disgusting socialist who is a soldier, who is a henchman, who is a, a subservient, servile, un-American, and it is Justin Amash, who is, who is actually the warrior. So my response here was immoral based on Christian just war theory and basic human ethics. And, and you know, if I wasn't limited to 140 characters, I, I would have kept going <clears throat> with, uh, you know, if you, if you got any basic concept of ethics, you'd be a libertarian. Uh, we were unwitting accomplices in a war crime, Dan. Take your collectivism, collectivist terrorism, fear porn somewhere else. The American people aren't buying it. And then some perspective, the restraint of Muslims. And if you haven't watched that video, I, I hope you'll go back and, and watch it. But anyway, that was my morning on Twitter, Jim. <laughs> um, outstanding. That's crazy. Yeah, that guy's uh, we <clears throat> definitely rife with propagandist general uh Cheap mentality. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, it's the most. It, I mean, it seems so obvious to 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 me. I don't know what you know, what to tell people to make it obvious to them too. You know what I mean? If there is such a thing as toxic masculinity, this is it. Of yeah. of perverting the divine masculine, the the true warrior spirit into Dan Crenshaw's brand of subservient cuckolded, just uh, subservient, servile soldiers willing to do the bidding of politicians at the expense of doing the right thing, at the expense of freedom, where you, you preserve when you preserve the aggression <clears throat> of the masculinity, but you subvert the noble spirit behind it and replace it with uh, a feminized, subservient version where uh, you shave your face look like a woman, put on a uniform, give up your individuality, and, and serve the military rather than, than serving the people and serving freedom. And uh, it, is, it is dangerous. This is, this is uh, that, that perversion of, you know, whether you want to use some of these terms or not, you know, maybe we'll have a, we'll have a panel uh, in the next couple of weeks deconstructing all of this. So please don't get hung up on my language on this. But obviously in terms of 
you know, what it's supposed to mean to be a man or a warrior or just a good human being, the perversion of that by the militarism that Dan Crenshaw and Mitch McConnell and, and all of these other, uh, you know, war hawks coming out of uh, the, the woodwork now that Trump is lame duck and talking about withdrawing a few of the troops, uh, not even a significant number at this point uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan. I think it's important that we stand up for, for uh, that divine, righteous, moral masculinity in the face of this. For sure. I like, I like what 1054 chimes in. He says, I'd like to think that people around <clears throat> the world understand more and more that governments start and sustain wars, not the citizenry. Info superhighway for the win, maybe. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, the, the, uh, the check on this power with the Internet, I mean, it's something that I've talked about. Uh, a number of times in terms of, uh, you know, the, you, you can't convince millions of gullible young men to meet in the middle of a field where none of them live and kill each other because they're wearing different colors the way that you used to be able to when we can all talk to each other with the Internet all over the world. And that, that kind of connectedness is, is the ultimate check on war based on lies that always require a disconnect and otherness. Uh, creation of an enemy and a, a dehumanization of, of the enemy, as we called it. So, Jim, do you, do you have any contest? Anything you would? We didn't. We didn't really have a good solid contest yesterday. It was too obvious that New Jersey and uh, Oregon, despite drugs being all decrimmed there, are the two places in America where you are not allowed to pump your own gas. I just, I just love that contrast. Like, yeah, in Oregon, you can basically do whatever drugs you want. But you can't pump your own gas at the gas station. And I, I don't know if I said this yesterday, but the first day, first stop on our trip in Oregon, I just got out of the truck and started pumping gas. And the dude comes up to me and is like, hey, man, you need a hand with that? And I was like, no, it's cool. I got it. And then he walked away, like, giving me a weird look. And I was like, oh, we're in Oregon. Technically, I just broke the law. Okay. I'm surprised he didn't tell you, like, no, it's against the law. Don't you know? You must be an out-of-towner. Yeah. Well, I didn't. Have, I don't have a plate on the truck yet, so I just bought it. So, right, but still, anybody. I mean, being that the state, it's just the way it is there. You would think any gas station attendant would be like, "Yo, don't you know you're not allowed to do that?" Hello. So this is that. You know, maybe this is the thing for the contest today, Jim, because that reminds me one of the most important things that we haven't really gotten into lately with, with talking about COVID. Believe it or not, we have some COVID headlines to get to today. No. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we got, we got to do more panels and special episodes so we can have like a break from. But even then, you can't. It's it, it, again, you have to accept that there is this. It is a dark cloud hanging over everything, and to pretend it not it's not there for a while might be nice, but you can't ignore it. And it it, it the thing about this second wave that we're experiencing right now, you know, it's uh, I, I'm I'm. I'm disappointed in America. I'm disappointed in humanity that we haven't really, like, really, we're still allowing government to do this. But the thing that I've thought of uh, that, that's so positive out of all of this, at, at a much, aside from, like, you know, again, why we need your support, we the people need to be the ones writing the history of the coronavirus pandemic so that we don't let them sweep under the rug all the times that they were wrong and did things that, that, that made the situation actually worse biologically. But the idea is that everybody 
is a civil disobedience activist to one degree or another because of Corona, because the lockdowns and the shutdowns have been, uh, the, and the guidelines have been impossible to follow. Like, like to, I mean, not impossible, but for most Americans, are you really are going to wear a mask by those guidelines. You're really going to abide by those curfews. You're really going to, every little activity that they say you're not supposed to do, you're going to, you're going to do with, with, Perfect six foot. You're never gonna. You're never gonna accidentally get five foot six inches away from somebody else. Like, uh, it, no, no. And and that they kind of accepted that. Uh, the 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 rules are like. I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, you know, make fun of any, any any particular individual family members. But I, I recently. I'll just. I'll, I'll say it like this. I had a family member refer to other family members as compulsive rule followers and even for them it's like well wait is is it 14 days or seven days of quarantine or is it is it three days and how often are we supposed to get tested and are we allowed to is this essential is that essential like you, you just you can't you know it's, it, it's impossible and i think for for people like that who you could describe as compulsive, like you think about it jim how how what percentage of the american people would you think would would you describe as compulsive rule followers? Five uh, percent, maybe. But just it's that low, you think? Yeah, that are compulsively. Yeah, most people break the rules. So no seatbelt is one that hits ninety-five percent right there. <laughs> I think. You know what I mean? Wait, no turn signal, rolling stop signs. Give me a break. All right, Nobody, compulsive. Okay, so now you're get, you're getting to what I'm talking about here. You're, and this is this is a really fun. So we're going to turn this into a contest question for the day to give away membership in the producers club uh, because this is a good kind of like help us figure something out editorial here, right? Do you think so you're Jim? You're making the case that 95% of the American people uh, regularly, deliberately don't wear seatbelts. Uh. Well, no, I guess I I, I don't want to go, you know, making that specific of a claim on the seatbelt specifically, but I know it's a large number. I I would venture to say that the majority of people don't wear their seatbelts on a regular basis. Uh, it would be a higher percentage that don't use their blinkers. I could tell you that right now. <laughs> Guarantee you. My own father well, has a blinker in years, I mean, probably, <laughs> unless I make I'm, him do it. <laughs> <sighs> hmm. See this. So this is the question. I want. I want to come back. We're going to ask Larry about this. We're going to ask Larry about, uh, you know, his take on COVID in New York. We're going to ask him about what's coming up with with his activism in the Libertarian Party. Uh, excuse me. Uh, we're going to talk to him about this as well. You know, like in civil disobedience in general in uh, the era of Corona, but specifically in terms of. Uh, the, the broader question, excuse me, of, of like how many Americans does this represent and, 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 and has this shifted in, in a positive or negative way? So first, like as background on this, uh, I'm not a compulsive rule breaker, although it feels like it sometimes, I'm, but I am a compulsive rule questioner. But that's not, it's not compulsive, it's, it's deliberate because I, 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 I mean, I, I, um, the, the the people that were being referred to um, were not part of the Jewish part of my family. And so I was like, maybe they're not aware of what following the rules has led to in the past. 
you know, like just uh, you know, I hate to, I hate to play that card because I am I am a, a revisionist certainly of a lot of that history, but uh, I, I think having gone like to me it's rational, you know, having been ordered to do something unethical and illegal in in, in torturing people in Iraq, uh, you know. And, 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 and coming to have, have done the important work of, of understanding and processing that, uh, it, that makes me uh, kind of a compulsive questioner of, of authority. When authority I've, I've, I've seen the destructiveness that it leads to firsthand and, and how it can pervert good intentions. Anyway, I want to get to these headlines, at least before, or at least some before we get to Larry coming on the show here. So, um, oh, Marcus is putting in the chat, uh, that he, he wants to talk about, uh, he wants me to ask him if he's ready to endorse localization for 2024. Wouldn't that be fun? Uh, but this, this, this bigger question of, you know, where is America on, on this by, by this sort of, uh, obvious direct metric of, uh, obedience. You know, how, how American are Americans right now? How many are, Compulsive rule questioners or consistent rule questioners. How many are regular rule breakers? How many are our people who, like, like you would suggest that it's ninety-five <clears throat> percent that, that at least sometimes uh, conscientiously break the rules, and it's only five percent who are compulsive rule followers. So if you can put a, put a number on that, I mean, that's a big question. How many Americans are so un-American that they are actually compulsive rule followers? today is that a good enough question for the chat jim well and then it's just speculation as to what you agree with you'd have to add an explanation as to why you think that number why you you know oh of course yeah 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 of course the you know, best answer here like you gotta have you gotta explain it all right so like, we'll check this last thing don't be a status brings up one probably the most powerful point everyone speeds like in driving every i mean I would say pretty close, 90 or 95 percent of the people on the road that I observe while driving, and I drive a lot, are go. And I go, I won't go over five miles an hour over the speed limit, but I will go five <laughs> miles an hour over the speed limit, which is breaking the rule. And I get passed constantly. I get passed yeah. by old ladies. I get passed by everybody. I get passed by semi trucks. 95 percent of people go over the posted speed limit. At, at, multiple points throughout their driving daily, regularly, all the time. Well, for some, there. how many, though, don't? Because it, it, it could be 5%, 10% that never right. do. That like except, right. They accept that, oh, occasionally I'm going to slip or I'm going to go into a lower speed zone and I'm going to be ahead by a couple miles an hour. But, right. but they're, they're not they're, consciously. They're, they're generally trying to actually follow the limit. Right. Like, that's still a decent chunk of drivers out there. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. But, yeah, no, I, and I've wondered about this, Jim. Is that engineered? It's got to be, right? Because there's some places where it's like, no, this is a speed limit. Like, this is actually the limit. You go one over consistently or you're going to get pulled over. Like, there are a few places like that in the United States. And I wonder for the majority not being like that, if this if this is simply a quirk of driving or if this is some, like, bigger social engineering thing to say, uh, well, we want to we wanna give everybody a little continuous outlet for their rebelliousness. They can feel it and it makes them 
more inclined to be obedient on the things that we care about. Mm. All right. With that, let's get to some headlines. We're going to be checking back in with Jim and the audience later on in the show and probably taking questions from the audience for Larry Sharp if I don't get carried away with it myself. So BloombergQuint.com, end of year means end of federal aid. For millions of Americans, a whole range of pandemic aid programs are set to expire in the new year, leaving millions of Americans without the government support that's helped keep them afloat and threatening to hold back a rebounding economy. The biggest blow will likely come from the end of two federal unemployment insurance programs with roughly 12 million people facing a late December cutoff, according to a study released Wednesday by the Century Foundation. Also, measures that froze student loan payments Offered mortgage forbearance and halted evictions have a year-end deadline, and so do Federal Reserve lending facilities for small businesses and local governments. We've been following pretty closely, although there hasn't been much about this lately, the impending eviction crisis resulting from COVID. And again, in terms of writing the history of this thing, it is very important that we don't let them push all of their prior crimes that have gotten us to this point down the memory hole. So just think back when this first we first saw the government responding following Trump's national declaration of a state of emergency, $9 trillion of liquidity added to the market. Just federal, just government going, ah, more money, more money, more money. Get it. And I, if I, if I, if I have to be critical of myself here, and I do, to be responsible as a journalist, of course. I would say that I, I have been I've been wrong in, in some of my projections and, and predictions, but really more in just kind of being impatient or, or underestimating government's ability to draw things out. Uh, what we saw in March, and again, cannot forget this, is that there was a forced unemployment crisis when, when, when employment, boom, fell off a cliff because of shutdown orders. <clears throat> and there have been you know, variations in this. You can't, can't say that there's like a, a smooth flow of tyranny when we talk about policy. There are more steps and sudden, uh, you know, relief moments of, of, of the employment oppression and sudden cliffs that you fall off into crises where unemployment skyrockets. And we have pretty good mechanisms for dealing with that. And when the government can just Boom, add money to the economy. You can bail out a lot of these programs. You can keep money flowing for unemployment benefits. And you can even have, uh, you know, aid to, to companies to minimize unemployment. And, and yeah, we've covered it again in the story. It's, it's getting old. Because I told you from the beginning when the government says, oh, yeah, we're on all these loans. These you know, loans. We're just giving out you know, billions of dollars to, to, to corporate handouts. Uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of corruption. There's going to be a lot of theft. There's going to be a lot of funds. Uh, they, they, they get misdirected. And just recently, we covered the story that even for those companies that were being, uh, you know, propped up by these bailouts, by the loans for uh, employment, that a lot of those businesses failed anyway because the shutdown, the, 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 the greater restrictions are continuing. And I, I just have to point out as well that even at this like at this point, they've done so much damage. Uh, when people say, like, yeah, it's never going to come back, yeah, they got they got their reset. Uh, one example with this uh, that I, I just have to remind everybody of is, is with restaurants. It doesn't matter if the, if the government says, oh, yeah, now restaurants can operate 
uh, as normal. If half of your customer base is afraid to come in, you're screwed. Not a viable business anymore. A lot of restaurants, a lot of people uh, who, who depend on the restaurant business for their employment uh, recognize that it's a very fragile industry in the sense that a lot of the institutions, businesses, distributors, etc., are based on very, very slim margins. And if you don't have that complete customer base consistently coming in, buying food at your restaurant, maybe you can't pay the rent. You know, and, and there are a lot of places like that now where, where they're operating at quarter capacity and you're like, this isn't sustainable. No way. So th- there are a lot more cliffs coming, but they might not be cliffs. And, again, this is where I would say I have to somewhat revise my estimates, as good as they have been, and just pushing them back a little bit. And, you know, we, we, we were looking at the potential of the start of an eviction crisis uh, a couple months ago when, when – one of the major national moratoriums on evictions ran out, and it hasn't quite happened. I mean, I got to be honest. Like it, 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 but now that I, when I see this, and you go, well, this is it's going to get worse. There's a, there's an there's another cliff coming, you know, with these uh, year end deadlines approaching. But then you know, I go, well, I, you know, let's let's not underestimate government's ability to bail people out to print more money. So you've got an incoming administration, a new Congress, Senate being sworn in uh, early January. We've got Democrats maintaining control of the House, of course, uh, possibly going into Pelosi's last term as Speaker. But they have the potential to spend a lot more money. And, and, and if, if I had to if I had to predict, yes, they're going to be able to manage this. Uh, un- until it's over, they're, as in they're going to, uh, they're not going to allow this resulting in uh, an actual eviction homelessness crisis. I mean, we already see it. Like, I need to like lower my standards of those things or, or raise the bar for those things because we already have uh, an incredible surge in homelessness in the United States as a result of this and unemployment and evictions already. Uh, if, it, if it wasn't for the great standard of the cliff of the unemployment crisis, the forced unemployment crisis, we would be calling what we're experiencing now uh, a uh, an eviction crisis and a homelessness crisis. But <clears throat> uh, they're going to be able to roll this out slowly. There, there's going to be more government aid, you know, and, and my, maybe even sooner. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, but certainly by January, with the new Congress and with Biden getting sworn in. There, there's, there's going to be a huge push by the Democrats right now to take care of the American people as best they can with welfare and handouts and bailouts. And so you get ready. There's going to be a rush for that. And I, I would say, like, sign, like get ready to sign up. Don't, don't think, well, just because this money is stolen, I, I'm not allowed to touch it. No, it's been, it's been stolen from you as an American, as a taxpayer. And if, if you need to do uh, whatever you got to do to fill out the forms the right way to get a chunk of your money back, I say do it. So stand by. Be ready. There are going to be more announcements. There are going to be special relief programs. And the way they're rolling out the vaccine for this now, or vaccines, and uh, that's a, it, it, it's going to be a while. But they're also going to either they're either going to get to switch to a phase where they go from uh, economic suppression to using the vaccine as a means of control. Now, are we going to get to forced vaccinations? Not quite, not quite. 
But what, would you say it's a force back? Like if I if I stole your home, if I stole your house, and said, "Well, I'll let you back in. Uh, you don't, you can't own it anymore, but I'll let you back in if you get this vaccine." Is that a forced vaccination? No. To take that metaphor to reality here, Ticketmaster, yeah, Ticketmaster uh, is going is, is going to say that you're not going to be able to get <clears throat> uh, tickets to concerts or any of their other events without uh, proof of having been vaccinated. Uh, now you go, Adam, but where's the stealing the house part come into this? Well, if it wasn't for corporatism, if it wasn't for taxes and federal regulations, you wouldn't have the, the conglomerization of the music industry and certainly not tickets being all sold under this singular massive entity known as Ticketmaster. So uh, there, there, there are a lot of things about this. Uh, as long as we're talking about the music industry, we see that it, it, we got another story about that today, that, uh, that the music industry might be uh, cut in half in, by, by some metrics as a result of this. But back to the main story. What is this fiscal cliff that we see approaching for January? Some COVID-19 assistance could potentially be attached to a spending bill needed to avoid a federal government shutdown, but with Congress deadlocked and a White House transition looming, the outlook for another stimulus package this year is bleak. President Donald Trump hasn't outlined a plan to extend the aid programs via executive order, and his successor Joe Biden won't take office until the second half of January. All this poses risks to a U.S. economy that's recovered faster than expected. It still has a long way to go, particularly with the resurgence of COVID-19 cases bringing a new wave of restrictions on business. While in aggregate, household finances are in great shape. The strength is uneven with jobs still 10 million below February levels. And, and there's so many ways these, again, got to remind everybody that 86.75309% of all statistics are bullshit made up to manipulate you. And this is nothing worse. So there's, a, there's another section of the story about gig workers. And, uh, you know, for people who are left out of the system, this is a lot harder than for people who are super plugged in. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things that they've always had in their back pocket as a libertarian. Like, I've, I, you know, I've been always aware of this, but now we're seeing it played out, right? And someone, like, I, because I've decided, hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to work a schmuck job. I'm not going to pay taxes. I, you know, I'll let you take them out on my paycheck without me even having a chance to, to, to withhold and say, no, you can't steal from me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to live off grid and I'm going to separate from the, myself from the system as much as I can. Well, I'm still not completely separate. I still, unfortunately, have to use the, I can't do everything in crypto. You know, I have to use the U.S. dollar. I have to, in, in some things, I have to interact with the state in other ways. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I choose to, uh, you know, to go to Walmart occasionally to order stuff online from Amazon. And so in that sense, I'm, I'm plugged in. But I'm not plugged into the point of, well, government's going to take care of you because you're one of the favored, obedient workers, you know. And so for all these people in these programs, what they can do is say, oh, well, we're, we're going we're to screw over everybody, but we're going to take care of people who are, you know, sucking that government D on the daily, you know, who are really plugged in, who are going to get that relief. That's what's coming. There's going to be another dangerous separation. And in a way, we have to stand strong and, and take care of each other. And, and I would just remind people that, economically, this isn't just a time, you know, for mental health to reach out to people who are stressed, uh, to be supported, uh, supportive of, of your community, but but also to, to, to have that awareness about, uh, you know, people who are getting disadvantaged by this. Uh, there's another section in the story, 10 evictions, the CARES Act, the main pandemic relief measure 
passed in March prohibited landlords with federally guaranteed mortgages from evicting tenants. When that moratorium expired in July, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention halted evictions of eligible tenants through December 31. Several states have enacted their own suspensions, just a handful extend beyond year end. Now, the whole tenant eviction thing, uh, there's another section here, mortgage, mortgage forbearance. All of these are temporary plugs, and they're not, like, there's no way that government can actually carry out their intended goals without there being unintended consequences here. And it's not just unintended consequences. A lot of the consequences are completely intended. Uh, as I would remind everybody, what is the real purpose of government? To keep the super rich getting richer at the expense of the rest of us. There's another section here on student debt. So, uh, and, and federal loans. So we are going to see major economic realignments. We are going to see at least between now and the, uh, the the full realization of the potential of, of, of whatever vaccine is on the horizon when they switch from be afraid of COVID to be afraid of the unvaccinated. That this is this is the reality that we're facing. There are going to be a lot more people suffering. We're seeing the biggest power grab, perhaps by at least by the numbers. In the entire course of human history, you look at how much wealth and power is being concentrated with COVID as the excuse. With a little historical perspective, you go, wow, this is this is truly, truly frightening. And while there might not be another dramatic cliff, uh, I, I would say that it, while we are experiencing this second wave of government, of, of government power, of government ripoffs, of government relevance in our daily lives, that, uh, that we stay strong. And, and this is uh, this is the time to not just be ready to fight back. Uh, maybe, maybe now that the election has passed, we can fight back in more meaningful, long-term, enduring ways without that distraction. But also, uh, as we've been saying really since the beginning of this thing, it is still the time to be looking out for people in your communities, to be looking out for the mental health of those, uh, your friends, your family, your neighbors, people who might be suffering in ways that we don't fully appreciate based on our own situation because of that, and, and to just stay strong, uh, you know, as, as, as humans, as, as part of this great global family where we are, remember, not just suffering in the United States, but all over the world under this dark cloud of corona hanging over everything. And speaking of which, we go now to our guest. Larry Sharp is backstage. This is exciting. All right, because... Larry Sharp is uh, the host of the Sharp Way, of course, longtime libertarian activist, successful candidate, coming to us from New York today. A lot of things we got to cover. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. How you doing, brother? I'm not going to say I call myself successful candidate. I'm not sure that's true. Candidate, yes. <laughs> hey, successful. Hey, liber- libertarian standards, Larry. Libertarian standards. The goal that's true. Are, and and I, I don't know. I, I don't have to remind you of this, but I, I would say to our audience, that, you know, as libertarians, as party activists, and as candidates, we don't know that, that, that we're going to win and we're going to get to wear the ring of power, but we know that we're spreading a righteous message. And, I, would, Larry, I would be totally happy if libertarians never won a single election ever again, but we started accelerating the process that we're already using of, of I don't know, political shaming Republicans and Democrats into doing the right thing and slowly dragging them towards more libertarian positions. Is that fair? Yeah. Uh, I think it's it's a valid point, right? Don't get me wrong. Of course I want us to win elections. Of course I do, right? But if we didn't, uh, but we made change, I'd still be okay, right? I, I'm on I'm on record 
when, at the end of my Joe Rogan interview, Joe Rogan was like, Larry, those ideas are great ideas. And I said, yeah, me. He said, where'd you get them from? I said, me and my team made them up. He goes, oh, great. He said, um, well, you better lock those ideas down. I said, why? He said, people will take them. I said, take them. I don't have to run anymore. I'll go back home to my family. If, if yeah. we were to change everything, if, if all of a sudden my governor, this would never happen, but if all of a sudden my governor said, you know what? I have seen the light. I am now going to be just like Larry Sharp and adopt all of his ideas. <laughs> I would never run again. I'd be like, done. I win. Yeah. I yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I want to underscore this point because I don't think if you haven't done this or, or like been involved enough, you might not fully appreciate that when you decide I'm going to run for office as a libertarian, you're inherently saying, screw my chances at glory and, and personal edification and you know, getting my name on buildings. I'm going to do the right thing. Chips fall where they may. Because if I was not of that spirit, I would be a Republican or Democrat trying to suck up to the mainstream because then I get more personal glorification out of that. We have inherently rejected that. And I'm not sure I'm putting principle before personal glorification. I'm not sure that's true. Look at some of our libertarians who run. Some of them run so they can be personally powerful and strong and celebritarians in our small pond. So I think the better ones don't do that. You're right. But I think some do. Some are like, you know, I, I can't be a big fish in a big pond, so I'll be a big fish in a small pond. And I'll run so I can be super cool in my small area or, you know, be cool in my my little my little fiefdom. So I think you're right in theory. And I think most people who are better candidates do think that way. But there is a, a cadre of people who are running because no one's paying attention to me. So well, I, I, mean, I think of people who have sort of like infiltrated the party as not quite libertarians. I mean, you make me think more back to like Bob Barr and who, who you know, and, and I would say um, Mike Gravel, you know, who are like, oh, we're not being you know, Democrats and Republicans aren't paying attention to us. Let's let's go. For it. I don't know if you want to talk about more recent uh, nominees, but uh, the that's the exception and they're obvious but those of us who are running for the right reasons it really is uh, a certain willingness to accept that doing the right thing comes first winning comes second yes and but the, the, but there's a problem with that i think you're right and there's a problem this is a, this is a this is a a yes and right um the the people who are seen the most aren't those who are doing it for the right reasons that make sense, right? The people who become more popular, the people who go on TV more, most of them, or who keep going, most of them, I think, maybe not aren't, aren't, maybe aren't those people. But there's another problem, though. And that other problem is the more people we have running, the less support we have for people who are running because we have a very small talent pool, right? I'm a business guy, right? And I look at a talent that I have available to me, right? I have less talent available. At best, active libertarians are maybe 2% of our population. At best. I'm probably stretching with that. Right? Active libertarians. People who know the libertarians, right? Who get it, who want to do something. At best, 2% of, of our population. How much talent do I have? People who know how to raise money. People who know how to organize. People who know how to manage. People who know how to speak properly. People who know policy issues. It's limited. And if I'm taking out, for the sake of argument, 100 people, 
And if I'm making 50 of them candidates, I've only got 50 support staff. That means one per. But if I instead only have 10 candidates, now I got 10 support staff for each, each one of them stronger. So I would prefer more people to say, I want to make impact. I don't have to make impact as a candidate. I can make impact someplace else. I hope I'm that example, right? I've only run one time. I ran for governor. Other than that, I'm doing this stuff, right? So I'm supporting others. In, in my show, um, Libertarian Shooting Coffee Live, uh, this year, I think I interviewed 75 different uh, local libertarian candidates, trying mm-hmm. to give them some extra oomph, trying to give them some extra confidence, trying to support them. Very often, I take calls for people and give them advice on what I learned from my from my campaign, hoping it will assist them. So you can make impact without running. I'm not saying you shouldn't run. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we shouldn't assume that if I want to be principled, if I want to move the, the, the movement forward, running isn't the only answer. Running is one answer that you should take if you think it's appropriate for you. But there are other ways. All right, Larry, enough libertarian navel-gazing here. How many people have you seen drop dead in the streets in New York recently with COVID? It's everybody, right? We are you, the, are you the last living person in New York at this point? We do have attractive navel, so thanks for gazing. But, um, no, uh, actually, New York City is no longer the hub anymore. Now it's the Midwest. So, um, I, But, no, the, the funny thing about New York City is we are going out of our way to destroy our city. We're just going out of our way to just devastate our city. Um, we have thrown out cryptocurrency. We won't legalize cannabis in New York State. Um, yeah. Yep, just insane. We won't do it. Um, we're now destroying finance to the point where Wall Street's considering packing up and moving to Texas. That's the newest thing that's, that they're doing. Yep. And on Wall Street right now, for those who don't know this, so since 9-11, and it's gotten worse since the crash, there's only one bank on Wall Street, only one. You can live on Wall Street. Like, that's – it's apartments now. You can, like, have an address, 35 Wall Street. Now the only bank that's on Wall Street now is Deutsche Bank because they own the building. Everyone else has moved to Park Avenue, which is where the rich people are. That's why I moved my office there. So so I could get – so I get some of that money, Adam. So I got to get paid. So I moved my office on Park Avenue because of that. So they're all on Park Avenue now. And the, and the biggest chunks now are actually moving out in San Francisco. Because right now, people haven't figured this out. Sorry, New York State hasn't figured this out. Tech no longer follows finance. Finance follows tech. So now Mm. they've moved to San Francisco. Well, with that, they're trying to go to places where they are more friendly. Wyoming is friendly. Texas is friendly. California is not becoming friendly. So bankers are moving out there to follow follow, uh, tech. So my city is getting destroyed. So what's my city about now? Heavily, it, it is now about tourism. We have the UN. We have but the not after Liberty. 10 p.m. This is, this is Thank a, you. a perfect segue. Thank how, you. How do you have a tourism industry in the city that never sleeps? We don't. It's 10 p.m. curfew. Because our city now sleeps. You're correct. Yes, our city now <laughs> sleeps. That's the problem. It shouldn't be doing that, but it does. You're exactly correct. And we are going out of the way to trash our city. Our city is, is being destroyed. The wealthy are leaving like there's no tomorrow. It doesn't. And here's the worst part about it. Now, since since COVID hit in March and my governor, uh, King Andrew Cuomo II, all hail the king, since uh-huh. he deemed me non-essential, I was unable to go work because it, it, he and his imminent wisdom has decided I'm not valuable. So I've had to change my business model to heavily coaching. Most of the people that I coach 
are wealthy or at least well-off. Not all, but most are either wealthy or well-off. They're not in New York City anymore. If you're wealthy in New York City, you don't have one home. You have one home in Manhattan usually, and that is someplace else. Jersey Shore, upstate New York, Connecticut, Florida, something like that. These people have moved to these secondary homes, and now they found a way to work and function from their secondary homes, much nicer and cheaper homes. Mm -hmm. They're not coming back. They're not coming back. And when they don't come back, all the people who service them don't come back. All the people who service them don't come back. And all of a sudden, now the city struggles tremendously. My city was at eight and a half million, the largest city in the country. It will yeah. still remain the largest city in the country, but it's going to go below eight and a half million and it's never going to come back. It's, I don't think it's ever going to break seven and a half million or maybe even seven million ever again. That's going to happen. Yeah. Now, when it comes to COVID, are we getting hospitalization? Of course we are. We're a densely packed city. It's, and the density is one of the biggest things. So of course we're going to have, have COVID. At the same time, New York City has some of the best medical facilities in the country. So we are also going to be uh, having a higher survivability rate. We are doing something very well. The other issue we have is we have an elderly population in New York City also, lots of elderly people. So the numbers, while they're high, when you compare them to 8.5 million, remember, New York City, the population of New York City is larger than 40 states. So because of that, you're going to see a difference. It isn't as bad as someone would think. Well, so let me ask you about your background question now. Uh, In terms of the virus uh, itself, uh, how much of a unique threat do you believe it actually represents and how much generally speaking has that threat been exaggerated by government uh, and, and particularly the New York City government? Yes. The, the threat without question is a real threat. I do not believe that COVID is a hoax. It is nowhere near as bad as the reaction. It doesn't warrant anything near that. It is nowhere near as bad as CNN would make you believe. It is a real threat. And if you are over, say, 70 and you have a pre-existing condition, that comorbidity is horrible and it will take you out. That is clear. It is absolutely a threat, particularly if you are in that age range with another uh, issue. Absolutely. As a whole in New York City, not crazy. I was literally on the subway every, almost every day. The New York City subway, almost every day, December, January, March. I traveled the country, I mean the country, the state, just two mm-hmm. weeks ago, three weeks ago. I, I went to every yeah. single county in New York State, all 62, did it in five weeks, met people at every one. Mm-hmm. I didn't see people dropping dead anywhere. I didn't see people <laughs> dropping dead. In one of our counties, Yates County in New York State, there are about 30,000 people, give or take, in that county. And they had a total of six COVID deaths, all from one nursing home. So, yeah, it's nowhere near as bad. It is a threat, but nowhere near as bad. I mean, I have two people in my life who are over 80 and have pre-existing conditions. I do not visit those people because I'm afraid it will kill them. That's real, right? I care about those people. I don't I don't hang out with them. But otherwise, I, I tend to just, you know, I put a mask on to make people happy. Most people in, in New York City are wearing a mask. I put it on to make people happy. I do it, and I live my life. Do you have uh, any other things that you're dealing with other than mask mandates and uh, the, well, the 10 p.m. curfew? I really, I mean, this is this is relatively new, is it not, for New York and all of this that, that just happened this last week? And it's not like new. The, it's 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 reestablished. Okay, so there was a period where you had a curfew on in New York City earlier, and then it came off. It's <laughs> back on. 
how are people dealing with this? Is there is there civil disobedience? Is there meaningful enforcement? Or, or hey, are people just kind of complying? You you know that New York City is basically a communist state, right? You're you're aware of that? Yes, it's basically a communist state. So no. Is that why you live there, Larry? Uh, I was actually born here in Manhattan. So yes, and I'm 52. So you know, I've been in New York a bit. I know my I know my state relatively well. Um, but no, the, the the problem is most people just they just go okay, that's it, and they just accept it. And then when they go under. They walk away and they don't come back. That's the problem, right? New York, most who don't know, New York City is one third of New York City residents are not born in the country. Another one third are not born in New York City. So only about one third of New York City's population is born in New York City. So they all have family and friends someplace else. So when stuff gets bad, they go home. They just go, I'm done. I'm out. And they leave. Right. The, the glory that has been New York City and why it can still survive and thrive in the past, that is with such a communist state is because the opportunity was so huge. People would put up with the oppression because the opportunity was massive, particularly if you were a woman and English was your second language. You could not beat New York City if that was who you were. We're so open to that, everything like that. So many people not being here, not caring about gender, right? It was one of the issues that I, that I dealt with when I began to, to, to look running, uh, running for office, not understanding my own mindset in New York State, right? In New York State, the gender wars are basically over, right? I mean, nobody cares. Like, if you're gay or straight or whatever or bi or poly, ah, can you get a job, man, or not? Can you get a son or not? I don't really care. It doesn't matter to me. We don't even talk about it. It's not a thing. There's a fight to get past sexual judgment. Done. That that war's over in my city. That war's over, right? There's a couple of people who still get mad here or there, but no, they're, they're, they're shunned and people don't really care. But outside of New York City, clearly that war is not over, right? And me being in the city, sometimes it blinds me by what I see here. And I think that happens to me often living in this city so long. I don't always get what's happening outside the city, which is why I try to have friends and family and people I talk to who are outside the city to make sure that I can shine a light on me. Law enforcement, I'm accustomed to New York City. 40,000 policemen in New York City, right? I'm accustomed to just accepting things like you can't you can't have 10 people in your house. That's our other rule. You can't have more than 10 people in your house. And we're like, ever, okay. Have you ever been stopped and frisked or are you, are you white enough that that doesn't really happen? No, no. I Whenever I go to the city, I wear a suit. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Be, be half white, wear a suit, and stop. Got and it. You good. You good. Yes. Oh, if I had a hoodie oh, on, <laughs> all bets are off. Exactly. Wear a suit, you're fine. So, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's totally yeah. But I guess to your earlier point, oh. though, I mean, the the idea that people are going to fight back is slim. They'll just leave. That's what usually happens in New York City. They they tend to not fight back. They tend to just leave. That's the norm in New York City. And my fear is more and more are going to leave because the opportunity is not going to be there anymore, right? All the people who were going to grow are not. The, the, the thing that this COVID crisis has exacerbated, and COVID didn't exacerbate this, the government response is what exacerbated this, is right. that we, we were already starting to be able to do things like work from home and things like that. That was already happening. Now that's just exploding to where now you don't have – the glory of New York City again was – I'm sorry, you're, you're talking about New York, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pump my city, right? Yeah. So the glory that was New York – was that you had 16 million to 20 million people in the metro area. 
so much talent there, so many clients and customers there. Oh, my God. But now when you move so much to Internet, so much to Zoom, so much to stream, uh, StreamYard, so much out of that, there's no requirement to be in New York City anymore to still get that talent and to still work together and even to get those customers. So the, the, the advantage that New York City had has been exacerbated to be, you know what, not such a big deal. And if I don't have mm-hmm. the higher talent in New York City anymore, I don't have to pay them six figures anymore. Yeah. And that, and that was the huge opportunity. You could move to New York City and literally within three weeks be making $95,000 a year. That was a thing that could happen easily in New York City. Well, because I had to pay you that because you want to, you know, you want to rent a one bedroom in Manhattan. It's 2000 bucks a month to rent a one bedroom in Manhattan. If that's, of course you got to pay guys 90 grand a year. He can't survive without it. Of course. Right. Coffee's seven bucks. <laughs> Right. The other day, I, we went to the store to buy organic eggs for a dozen. Seven dollars for a dozen eggs. Yeah. You got to make $95,000 a year in this city or you can't survive. Correct. All right, Larry. G- given how much you clearly hate New York City, when are you going to move to Arizona? Uh, I'm still here. I'm still fighting, man. I got to go to conduct, right? You got to fight till you got no ammo. I still got mm-hmm. ammo. Oh, oh man, that's a gruesome metaphor. But yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And for those of you who don't know, Larry is also a former jarhead who is better now. Uh, I, I, <laughs> better I think, now, I like that. Better now. I think you were. I think you were also tagged in uh, the tweet this morning that, uh, that that got me cued into the the Justin Amash the yep. Crenshaw debate. Did I you see tagged. that? Yep, I was tagged. And I just just quick aside here because. We've seen when I saw this from Dan Crenshaw, I was like, "Really? This is this is how low your standard of intellectual integrity is." But it seems like he is now auditioning, or or maybe completing his audition to be the, the spokesperson for the military-industrial complex. CJ's got this up on stage, and this is, I think, the last one from from Crenshaw in the exchange with Amash. Immoral, based on. My friends risking their lives understand a basic truth that you refuse to. This enemy wants to kill us. Protecting America's flank is indeed moral, a basic duty of government, and yes, dangerous. Thankfully, we have people willing to take that risk when you won't. We're seeing similar pandering, propaganda, emotional manipulation from people like Mitch McConnell now in in, uh, response to Trump with his – I hate to be pessimistic, but it's a bullshit fake – a symbolic drawdown than a real group or, or, or policy change uh, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. What's your response? You know, I, I hate to say as a veteran, because I like to say, you know, Ron Paul, you don't have to go to Iraq to read the Constitution. You don't have to see, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a trigger bullet to realize that killing your politicians is wrong. But we are in a unique position as veterans, unfortunately, to speak to people who need that uh, appeal to authority or need to hear from uh, warriors about uh, why these wars are bullshit. Larry, do you have a response to those the general propaganda, emotional yeah. statements? It's, it's the norm, right? I mean, it really is, is the norm. There are two things happening together, and it's, it's the only reason why it's so difficult is because of the Georgia elections coming up here. Mm. The, the Republican Party would have already ditched um, Trump weeks ago. They would have already ditched him, but they can't because they really care about the Georgia elections. And there are too many people in the Republican Party who really openly love and support Trump. And they will vote for him and support him. Even if he loses the election, he lost the election. They, they don't care. They're going to vote for him. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And they know that. So if Mitch and the boys turn on Trump, 
those people may not show up in Georgia in January, was it third or fourth, whatever that, whatever that election right. is. They won't show up. They don't show up. Georgia gets two Democratic senators. They do not want that. That will change the Senate. That will give Biden the Senate. That will Mitch McConnell will lose his job. They can't have that. So that's the only reason why they're playing any games with Trump at all. They don't care. That those okay, people- hold on, Larry. Yeah, literally, you, you've introduced an angle that I hadn't really considered in this, but I, I want to step back for the, 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 there's a bigger conflict within the Republican Party. Again, one of these issues where, you know, libertarians are pulling the old parties in our direction, whether they like it or not. They can't justify war and, and invasions and occupations and all the militarism the way they used to be able to. And so Donald Trump was was truly anti-interventionist in his populist messaging and his branding and, and pretty consistent in that. And I got to at least give him credit for having not escalated militarism in any yeah. meaningful way over his presidency, right? So people say, well, Trump is the most libertarian president we've ever had because they get ever so slightly more libertarian, less less vicious status over time. Yes, Trump is still wicked, evil, big government status who grew it under his uh, administration. But yeah, he's not some vicious escalation. And in that sense, um, you know, I can celebrate that. But now what we have is, what, what, what you have illuminated here is that there is, uh, an internal dilemma within the Republican Party. Yep. To win in Georgia, does the Republican Party put forward its anti-interventionist side or its hawkish side? What's the strategic analysis there? Yeah, there, there isn't. It's there's an enemy. That's all that matters, right? Remember, the war is not meant to be won. It's meant to continue forever, right? That's right. the goal, right? We remember, uh, you know, was that is now Qaeda our enemy? Oh wait a minute, Saddam Hussein? Oh wait, ISIS? Wait, who? What? Gaddafi, which one's our enemy? I forgot, right? It's Iran. That's who it is. Iran, that's right. Yes, what, whatever, right? It's, it's whomever it is. It's always a war. So the goal is simply to create an enemy, a distraction. The goal of the Democratic Party has a similar problem, and that's the, the AOC and Bernie's of the world. They now want their cut, right? They gave in and said, Biden, fine. We're behind you. Now where's our cut? We got a cut coming too. And Biden's like, I've, uh, Ayo what? Who are you? But Bernie. I, I, I got a buddy named Bernie. I don't know who you are. So Biden's already all of a sudden forgot these guys. That's where he's playing right now. He's like, I cannot wait to get Susan Rice back in. Fire up the war machine. We are ready to go. That's what Biden's thinking, right? Now, everybody knows that's true. McConnell doesn't actually care either way about that. He's fine bombing people as long as they're brown. He doesn't care. He'll bomb them. He's fine. Just as long as he stays in power. That's all he cares about. He didn't care about Trump bombing people or not. Trump didn't care. Trump didn't want to bomb people, right? Trump was trying to be the, the deal break, the deal maker in the Middle East, right? That's what he was trying to do. It right. didn't work out the way he wanted to make it work out. So now he'll withdraw troops. That's his thing. That's his legacy. So the point I'm going to bring up here is that the fight is within the Republican Party twofold. One, to hold on to Trump reporters until the Georgia election. And then the second thing, who will now run the Republican Party? Because while Trump will still have influence, the odds are he's not going to be able to have the same amount of power. He's not the president anymore. So he's going to become more of the kingmaker versus the king. So they're trying to make sure they stay good enough on his side. But then who's going to be the actual king? So that's the fight they're having there. Now, the Democrats don't want to have people fight because there's a chance. It's a small chance. But if Biden's bad enough to his own lefties in the Democrat Party, Democrats will break off. They'll bring in the Socialist Party, the Green Party, and they'll create an actual party, the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. 
That right now, the DSA is actually just a wing of the Democratic Party right now. That's what it is. And the socialists are a wing of the Green Party right now. But if Biden doesn't, if he's like, you know, I don't care about you lefties, I don't care at all, they'll break off and they'll and they'll create their own party because they want to make things change. They, they want socialism. They want that desperately. And a lot of mainstream Democrats don't want that. So they'll break off. And the Republican Party has a problem, too. If they if they completely dis-Trump, does Trump create his own group or party or media empire or creation? Does he does he somehow merge Newsmax and OAN to create a more a more populist Republican side? Maybe. Or can he maintain his base as a voting block of a meaningful political threat? And I, I can't argue with him having that uh, yes. certainly right now. But it, it, it came so fast, I think it could go just as fast. But, you know, Larry, I want to go back to this question about the fear porn of, of militarist propaganda that we're getting from the Crenshaws and the McConnells right now. When you hear, and this is, this is more of like a candidate kind of messaging question, but also, you know, a deeper issue, I mean, almost spiritual question for someone who who is like me, you know, we, especially when you join the Marines, every Marine a rifleman. I mean, you can join the Air Force or you know, the Coast Guard, and hope you're just going to be a cook somewhere. And, and never, but not every, every Marine and rifleman, you know, Absolutely. you did that. You were there. You had your life on the line. When you hear uh, a civilian or an, a non-politician just sort of unwittingly repeating this kind of propaganda, like, like we saw from Crenshaw this morning, what's your response? Yeah, as a general rule, I don't try to change their mind because I probably can't, right? The odds are I try to fight battles that I can win. And I try to just influence people to the best of my ability. As a general rule, when someone's like, yeah, they're out to kill us or whatever the case may be, <laughs> I tend to ask questions. I tend to go, okay, um, who do you think is out to kill us? Or who are we fighting today? Or wouldn't it be better if we could be friends? Or something like that. And I'll try to do things like, you know, I'll do the, the Lincoln quote. Look, if I make my enemy my friend, I've destroyed my enemy. So how about we do that instead? Yeah, no, that's great. That is a really brilliant answer. And, and Larry, I think one of the better ways to play the veterans card, frankly, is when you're asking people these questions who are, and one of the, one of the things that really breaks my heart about, about seeing this from someone like Crenshaw, who's, who's a veteran and an actual combat veteran, um, is that they're not representative of the majority of the veterans community. Not even close. Uh, but they, they, you know, people like Pete Hegseth, uh, oh, yeah. More my generation. They were just really obnoxiously arrogant, pro-military, pro-war, pro-authority. I, I mean, I hate to resort to name-calling, but bootlicker, you know, really is an appropriate term for a lot of the people who have that mentality. And they don't represent the majority of the military. They don't represent – I mean, when, even when I was in, you know, you you would hear these rah-rah speeches, and most of us were sitting in the back going like, all right, whatever, let's go back to doing our thing. And it, it really is a, a, a disgusting way that the American people are taking advantage of to serve militarism. Well, you weren't there. You know, how, how many veterans does it take to screw in a light bulb? You wouldn't know. You weren't there, man. So you better go with the guys like Dan, Dan Crenshaw and, and, the, the, and Pete Hegseth and these pro-military but, but, veterans. But there is a very human it. side to this, though. And the human side is they have to validate their bad behavior. They have to validate what they've done and how they've acted. They have to validate these things, right? For them to go back, they would have to say to themselves, holy crap, I was wrong, and what I said was wrong. And this is what guys like you and I have done. We've gone through the 12-step AA. We've gone through that already, right? Right? I've already said, I've told people, 
that I used to wear the shirt that said, kill them all, let God show them out when I was 19 years old. I thought that was right. And one of the reasons why I thought it was right was because life was easy. When it was very simple, black and white, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and they is whoever Ronald Reagan tells me, because that was my first commander in chief. So yeah, so when Ronald Reagan says they're the bad guys, they're the bad guys. Why? Because he said so. Okay, great. We're authorized to kill them. Why? Because they're bad guys. Life is easy. Now with a shirt that says illegal isn't always wrong. That's a very different shirt that I wear now. A yeah. very different shirt that I yeah. wear um, than the one that I wore when I was 19. And I had to come to grips with that. You did too. And so did many libertarians who are veterans. It's a hard thing for them to do. And to be forward, for many of them, there's no safe space for them. There's no place for them to go. What happens when Crenshaw says, all of a sudden, you know what, God, what was I thinking? I was wrong. Well, he loses his seat. He gets primary. He's gone. His friends abandon him. There's no book or TV deal for him. What does he do? Go buy a franchise McDonald's and run that? I mean, what does he well, do? Larry, there's, there's no safe place for him. Yeah, Larry, I'm, I'm really glad that you bring it up in those terms. Uh, and, and there is something that I think we have gone through that is an admission of guilt. Uh, and, and for people like me and Dan, it has to come down to we were unwitting accessories to a war crime by Christian just war theory, by basic human ethics, by international law. There's no way around it. And it, it kind of, I, I think about this particularly with, with someone like Pete Hegseth, who uh, it, it seems to be motivated by uh, a deep-seated desire to, to rationalize or justify uh, hor horrifically immoral things that, that we were a part of. And it, it's, it's nice to be able to stay in that denial, but I, I think we are a lot happier to be able to see it from our perspective. And, and Larry, there's one other really exciting piece of good news that I have to share is that we, we recently secured seed funding for the Homefront Battle Buddies project. And Homefront Battle Buddies was what we called the peer support group that I organized with the Rock Veterans Against the War when we lived in D.C. Mm, right nice. now, we want, we want to bring it back with retreats and an online community and really a way for veterans to come together who are uh, looking for an alternative mm. to treatment for government. Because, you know, for me, it was a little brown bag, five prescriptions, three of them had suicide as a side effect. Right. For a lot of dudes, it's uh, when, when they start going through that process, you see there's no safe space. In a sense, we're creating a safe space for veterans who want to seek treatment outside of the government channels. Because, you know, confessing to war crimes in therapy is, is probably going to be more effective for you when you don't have to worry about getting arrested or reported or judged or prescribed suicide-inducing prescriptions. Yes. So we really are creating that, you know, alternative space. And I would just, I hope you can be involved and I would want to remind anybody that if you want to reach out to me, we have uh, Stephen McClure, uh, Navy, Bronze Star, Afghanistan combat veteran heading up this project. You can email me uh, and we'll pass it on to him. Just getting this organized, we need help with web organization and logistics and all sorts of stuff. Uh, eventually providing spaces with retreats. And, and, and this is actually the perfect segue back to uh, back to where I want to go with you with the election here and, and to take questions from the audience. But for a lot of veterans committing suicide today, mm -hmm. still 22, number that fluctuates shockingly little. Uh, That's the odd thing. Definitely very underreported, if yep. anything, because there are a lot of veterans who uh, did drink until they wrap their car around a tree. And yep. that's that, that's a kind of suicide as well. 
we need the warrior class to step back up and realize that, uh, well, wars are when governments tell you who the enemy is. Revolutions are when you figure it out for yourself. And if the troops defended freedom, we'd be attacking the government, at least in a metaphorical, intellectual... I like passing, that. FBI, if you're guys. listening, he means metaphorical. <laughs> yes, FBI, well. he means <laughs> metaphorical. <laughs> yes. And, and yes, and, but, but as, as warriors, to step up and confront and have the courage to confront the evil that we were once a part of. Uh, but, you know, with, with cannabis legalization sweeping the country now, uh, I think we came to a pretty exciting turning point. Also for veterans, opening up in many ways the possibility of therapy with psilocybin mushrooms and MDMA in very uh, controlled, supervised therapeutic settings as, as real cures for PTSD. It's a pretty exciting time. So, Larry, you know, we are going to take – so, Larry, I'm going to ask just uh, anything you want to comment on any of that, of course, or the election in general. Yeah, let me, drugs, let me just – drugs, well, drugs being the big winner, perhaps. But I want to I want to turn after this one last question for me the rest of the, the, this interview over to our audience and our producers club. I know we have some producer club questions, so you want to get your questions in uh, either in comments on on wherever you're watching this live or in the producers club. Um, after this one, we're going to turn to y'all and uh, comment. Jim Freedom is going to get those up on stage. By the way, Larry, um, our, our I love that our team here. We have uh, our co-host and our producer are also um, military veterans. Nice. For what that's worth. But to the, to the election, Larry, and, and again, anything you want to say to comment uh, on all that, uh, drugs being the big winner, the opportunities for veterans coming out of this, and everybody dealing with mental health issues that are going to be alleviated by conscientious positive drug use. But the big question I want to ask is, is looking at uh, Joe Jorgensen and, and the outcome. I don't believe it. I, I, I don't, I don't, I hate to, I don't fucking buy it. 1.1, 1.2% of the popular vote based on even how they, they admitted that she was polling before that, based on what we saw in 2016. Uh, and, and I don't mean to be a, a blind, optimistic cheerleader for the Libertarian Party, but uh, there's no way she only got 1.2%. There's no way it wasn't at least th like two or three times that. It could have been as, as, as high as 8 or 10%. As we see a, a new kind of cheating you know, when Republicans and Democrats say they're cheating, they stole the election for once they're both right and they're all they're all a bunch of lying, whatever. Uh, but it, it, they defend each other's votes or their own votes, but there's no one there to defend the, the vote total for Jorgensen. Uh, how do you think that manipulation affected her, uh, her total or the Libertarian Party in general in, in 2020? Holy crap, man, he threw a lot at me. Okay, um, let me try to unpack it. All right. Um, first piece on the veteran piece with suicides. There's another piece that we don't always know, and that is there are many ways in business that that we don't check if if the person's a veteran. There's no box to check, right? When you come on to your HR, one of the things I've talked about often when I do training and coaching when it comes to large organizations, I ask is, do you have a veterans affinity group, right? Do you have one of those groups that veterans can get together? As you know. Uh, over 50% of all veterans leave their first job within their first year. That's, it's a common thing. Keeping a job is very hard for veterans. But one of the, one of the reasons is they don't understand how to make that transition from veteran to regular everyday civilian. I struggled too, and I did this in the 80s and 90s, and I still struggled back then. Now it's even harder, right? And yeah. I'm not a combat vet. Combat yeah. vets struggle even more. I remember doing yeah. work with, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, just to underscore this for, for people who might not understand, it's not 
oh, well, you're a combat vet. You might have PTSD and we need to be con- – no, it's that there's, there's, there's a mentality that yes. you get in the command and control environment yeah. that you have to transition out of. If you've been to combat, maybe it's ingrained in a different way. But I, I didn't know that statistic. What, what was it, 50% oh, leaving look, jobs? Okay. A veterans leave their first job within a year because yeah. they can't transition. But if you had a veterans affinity group, you got a guy or gal who survived in this joint for three years, they go, Adam, sit down, let me tell you how stuff works. Let me, let me, I know just, you deal Just creating an, an institutional culture for veterans and for everybody else where veterans are comfortable saying, oh, shit, sorry, I went all, like, command and control. I yes. did my bad. I didn't mean it. I'm trying to be, I, I, yes. no, no offense. It's just my veteran habit speaking. And if, if we just got to even that level of, of comfort and acceptance, you'd alleviate a lot of that, right? Absolutely. So so a lot knowing that also means that in other areas, there's no checkbox for veteran. So do we actually know how many veterans are committing suicide? We probably don't. The number is higher than 22. Whatever that number is, it's higher than that. Because a lot of ways, there's no place to check a box. So there's no way to know. So that was my point of this entire thing, right? There is an issue with suicide that we haven't fixed. And a lot of it is institutional that we can repair with simple changes, right? Things like having a, if you go to any large organization, there is without question a women's affinity group. There's a black and or, and or Hispanic affinities group. There's a gay and or lesbian affinity, affinity group. There's definitely these different affinity groups within large organizations, but not veterans. Now more, but I'm back 10 years doing this. I've been doing this 10, 15 years. So when I first started doing it, it didn't exist ever. Now more and more of them are starting to exist, right? So that's part of the situation. So I know that was kind of off, but that's one piece. But it's a second piece which goes to the safe space piece you brought up in a suicide piece. It's difficult for a vet to change their mindset when their society tells them they're supposed to be a strong warrior. And they're supposed to, you know, be happy about beating people up or fighting or being strong or fighting the enemy. When your, when your peer group tells you, you're a Marine, Adam, you know how to kill people and blah, 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 right? When they tell you that, it's hard. I'm not saying impossible, but it's difficult for a person, particularly when they come back from the military and now they're in an environment where they're no longer feeling comfortable in that environment. So they're uncomfortable already. And now I've got a, a social circle telling me, you're the killer. Tell us how you killed people. When they're doing that kind of thing, it's difficult to go, dude, I'm, I'm not happy about that. And this even happened... After Vietnam, we see it in the movie The Deer Hunter, right? In the movie The Deer Hunter, if you, everybody remembers the beginning of that movie, if the, you remember the 70s, from Vietnam, it's from the 70s. When the guy comes back, they have a big party for him. Come on back, welcome home. The guy skips out on his own party because he can't handle it. It doesn't work for him. We talked about these problems 40 or 50 years ago. They're still happening now. And the changes we've made are minimal. Because we're so worried about being the let's bomb people because we're righteous, not let's take care of the people to come back who we've told to go bomb and kill people. So I think that's really an issue. So I want to cover those two pieces. Yeah, well, now, I, I mean, I'm inclined to like make the appeal to women here as I've done before, like about bad cops. Like you want you want a less vicious police state? Stop sleeping with asshole cops. Like, <laughs> you know, like you want you want you want a more peaceful world? Start stop blowing smoke up people's butts for enlisting in the military and passing out blowjobs like candy. It's not cool to glorify militarism, and there is, and with that perversion of masculinity, there's a perversion of the divine feminine to say, you know, worship soldiers instead of real warriors. 
But you're right that they're, they're kind of looking at it superficially. Um, but yeah, there's a uh, there's a deeper element to this Absolutely. in terms of reclaiming what it means to be a warrior and, and, and getting real deep in that. So those are those two pieces you brought up. Um, now the idea you brought up the, the idea of drugs winning the war on drugs. Absolutely, drugs drugs won a long time ago. Now they won at the ballot box, right? They they won in the streets years ago. Now they've actually moved to the ballot box, and they've they're actually winning. I completely agree. And I think that's not just going to help veterans. It will, but I think it's going to help people in general. All the people who we think are down downtrodden. Insert your definition of that. Almost all of them get stuck in the black market because the the mainstream won't accept them. Whoever these downtrodden are, whether they're uh, literally trans uh, uh, people who 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 don't feel accepted and they they wind up putting themselves into the sex trade, right? That's one set. Or whether it's a, a veteran who can't uh, get get his act together or her act together because they can't function in society, they don't have the support structure required to make that happen. Or the maturity level because they're only 21 years old. So they have none of those things to, to handle that. Whether it's someone who's a, a black youth who's in a bad neighborhood, insert the person. Whether it's a, a white guy who's over 50 who's no longer employable because he had a job for 20 years and now his his factory went under and he doesn't know anything else and no one will hire him because they think he's crazy because he's over 50 and they'll never hire him again. So now he's on drugs. Insert downtrodden person you want. This is going to help all of them. You are 100% correct. The idea of uh, of cannabis now being more and more legal, psychedelics being more and more legal, is nothing but going to help all of those people. I completely agree. So to the big question here, before we get to our uh, – we have some great ones piling up from the Producers Club. How much – was stolen from the Jorgensen vote count. What do you think her actual none? None. She got one point one percent. None. She was polling at about four percent, three to four percent prior to the prior to the election. That's what she was. Not and third party candidates almost always get half of what they poll. That's what they do. They get half of what they poll. Why? Because the people who say they're going to vote for the third party aren't really sure. They're actually former Democrats, Republicans. And they walk into that place and go, oh, you know what? I said I was going to vote Libertarian, but I'm a Democrat. Hold on a second, Larry. Larry, I, I, cause I, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to dispute the observable fact here Please. that you point out, which is that generally third-party Libertarian candidates poll twice what their no. final score is. Usually. Could that just be that's what they're – consistent average of being able to steal from us is I, you know could it just be that that that, that, that mythology that you created is a justification for what they want you to believe now and, and if, if that's the case maybe i would still be on the conservative end of my estimate with 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 uh, uh with jorgensen that she probably got something like two and a half percent right that, that was her possible. i mean if, if there is a, but the, the problem is here and this is the Jorgensen campaign struggled from many things that we always struggle from. The first one was thinking that we were getting get in debates. I kept saying that. You were there when I was saying it, Adam. We're not getting debates. Can't it's tell not going to yeah. happen. It's a fantasy. Stop pretending that's going to happen. I know I did it in my state. When I actually, I, the way to get in debates is to be popular and exciting. I was popular and exciting in my state, and I got in debates. I did. And what happened? My governor didn't show. So no, so none of my debates that I came in and I won, none of them got televised. If Jorgensen had won her lawsuit or whatever and got into debates, Trump doesn't show up. There's no debate. It doesn't matter. So lawsuit irrelevant. 
It's all irrelevant. All that matters is, do people want to see her? Because debates are about only one thing, ad revenue. That's what they're about. Can you draw ad revenue? Well, also it's, controlling the it's, it's I think the debate, not that that's not part of it, but they're more about controlling the general conversation, right? It's no. about manipulating the conversation. No. It's just about ad revenue. 100%. There's no political not, side of this. Not at all. They gave, they gave uh, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, if you remember, in the beginning of 2016, they gave them town halls. Why? Okay, so, 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 so you're bigger because they had the traction, right? Because it was. They, they had, no, they were testing to see if they had traction. And if it was a huge hit, then they put them in debates. And they knew that they could sell for ratings, at least to justify the time to former Republican governors that had that appearance of yep. credibility and traction. Yes, so then, absolutely. So, so, so then let me, let me shift gears for a second before, again, we have some great questions piling up here, but let's kind of get into that. If, if your case for Jorgensen is not just that uh, it, it was, you know, she could have had 10 points stolen from her. I don't, I don't think anybody in, in our camp has been fantasy in, indulging, trying to say, oh, Jorgensen really won and it was stolen from her. No, but she definitely got more than they're admitting to in the votes because there's no one there to defend I don't buy the, it. the libertarian vote count. Um, I don't buy it, Adam. But okay, 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 it, okay. But, but it wasn't an exciting campaign. That was okay, the other thing. It was not an exciting campaign. It okay, just so wasn't exciting. So let the, let me transition to that then, in, in terms of, of of what wisdom we can glean from your perspective. And that why why did Jorgensen fail to get the traction that we would have hoped for? She's not exciting, right? I'm I'm not trying to insult. I'm she was not exciting. People don't go, oh, my God, it's Jorgensen. She's not exciting. And the, and the entire campaign had no policy. You, there's no policy. The, it, the entire campaign was libertarian rhetoric, history lessons, and our platform. Yeah. That's not policy. That doesn't move people except libertarians. And the problem with libertarians is we're jerks. <laughs> and if we don't get exactly what we want, we go off online, attack, and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, no. Yeah, look, how do I know this, right? Oh, Larry, you're talking trash. Why didn't you run? The reason why, and I hear this all the time, whenever I say this, why didn't you run, Larry? Because I couldn't have done any better, so I didn't run. That's the point. If I thought I could have done better, then I would have run so I could do better. I didn't believe I could have had the time or the money or the energy to do it. So I didn't run. If I thought I had the time and energy, I would have. But but we didn't. And what happened was we had two sides of our party. And you saw, Adam, you were there. You saw it. It was two sides of our party. We had the left side saying, we're left and the right's terrible. And the right going, we're right and the, and the left's terrible. Both sides and the other. I told them both, you're not going to win. You've played the, left, the Democrat-Republican party. So 40% is the max for either of you because the other won't vote for you. So we're doomed to get our second choice. That's what we got. I, to I told Dave Smith this months before the election, uh, before the nomination. He goes, oh, Holmberg is going to win. I said, no way. I said, whoever's going to win is the safest choice. That's who we pick. We pick the safest choice. Jorgensen was the safest choice. If Armstrong was running, it might have been him. He was also a safe choice. So either Armstrong or Jorgensen, I think, was do, was destined to win this thing because the two sides weren't going to vote for each other. The Berman Supreme people weren't going to vote for Homburger. The Homburger people weren't going to vote for Berman Supreme. So what does that mean? We get number two. 
I got to say, I was a little disappointed to see that this year the, the conversation was more influenced by the left-right spectrum yes. than, and love what smart strategy for the LP. And we don't uh, worry about I, things like, we need a unity ticket. Who cares about a unity ticket? It makes me that's, wish we weren't debating thing. radicalism versus pragmatism. That bullshit argument has so much more substance to it than this left-right nonsense. Yes, in, in, I agree. Debating with the Libertarian Party. So, Larry, then, to, to all of those delegates who voted based on, oh, well, let's put up a woman against, you know, two predatory men and, and really offensive, toxic, masculine figures with Trump and Biden, uh, let's go with someone safe. Uh, you know, I was, I was actually pretty encouraged with Jorgensen that we got someone who was consistently principled, and I was excited about that, but I recognize that most people aren't excited by the same things as I am. Uh, if you remember well, when we talked about this, I was asking you why he used to run for VP. I was well, asking that question. I was like, well, do you really want to be part of this thing? Jorgens is a teacher. She doesn't know how to control an audience. She doesn't have to. The audience is captured. She doesn't know how to. Co- I know that I know teachers. And I said this. I did a video on this before the election saying if you pick an academic, either Hornberger or a Jorgensen, you're going to get someone who doesn't speak well. Because they don't have to capture an audience. Their audience is already in prison. So they just, they talk to their audience. And they're by default going to talk above people. They're going to give history lessons. It's who they are. That's what we're going to get. That's what we got. Okay, okay well, Larry, the question I want to ask dovetails nicely with uh, our first one from the Producers Club, from uh, Brad, who writes, what suggestions would you give to keep the momentum for the liberty movement going, even though the election is over? And I would just add to that, then, for, for those libertarian national delegates who nominated someone based on safety or identity politics, you know, what, what's your message looking forward to 24? I literally did a video on this. And if you go to my Sharpway uh, YouTube page, the video is right there. It's a message to the libertarian future. And I put out there, I, I believe there are six, uh, six uh, criteria that should not be put in writing, meaning, meaning as in a, a change to our bylaws, nothing like, no, but that delegates should be looking at. Six different things that people should be looking at in selecting our president. One, can they raise money? Have they built a team before Mm -hmm. the nomination? Mm -hmm. If they go, well, I'm waiting for nomination, in my view, and this is my opinion only, you're disqualified. Can you quit your job and do this full time? You can't do that? You're disqualified. But, Larry, I got Mm -hmm. a job. Don't run for president then. Do something (laughs) else. That's fine. Right? Being principled is assumed in my view. That's assumed in my view, right? That's automatically assumed in my view. But the, all the other things are what matter, right? Can you raise money? Have you already raised six figures before you get to the, the nomination? Have you already built a team before you got to the nomination? Do you already have a press reel before we get to the nomination, right? With those things, very few people could – do you actually have a policy team before we get to the nomination? If yeah. you say no – can you quit – and work full-time, and do this full-time, before we get the nomination. With those criteria, only about three or four people could have actually been nominated. You, Justin Amash, Vermin Supreme, and Ken Armstrong. That's about all we had that fit that criteria. That's about it. Well, and, 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 and one other thing I would, I would hope is that, uh, you know, what made our campaign unique in this, and, and again, making it as much not about me as possible, it really is the line in the sand of localization. 
And and I would suggest that you know in in this uh, in, in your standard of of something exciting, you have to be offering the American people a meaningful alternative as yeah. opposed to I'm going to be a better president. You know, and and, and the idea of, of resigning and and bankrupting and, and localizing the federal government. I don't want to say that's it. That's the only thing that meets this criteria. It's the only thing I've really heard that has the potential to do that and say, look, America, we need to try something fundamentally different. How about well, localization? I think you got to add two more, right? Um, you also have to grad. Uh, Judge Jim Gray had that too, and so did Justin Amash. They had the opportunity to, to, to grow and do things, had a press reel, had, had you know, raised money, had a team, all those things. Add on top of that, when I said policy team, is what you just talked about. you got to have policy, right? Is that what you just talked about? You have policy. Yeah. And that's why I said you had that. You already had localization as a policy. You actually had policy. So the Vermont Supreme, so the Judge Jim Gray, so many libertarians hated his policy, but he had policy, <laughs> right? Um, well, so Vermont Supreme's best policy was we're going to take your guns and give you better guns. Yeah, there we go. But at least they ha- there was policy there, right? So I think localization can work. It's not a bad policy at all, right? I support localization all the time. It's one of the things I talked about when I ran for, for governor, about the idea of letting counties be counties, right, that concept. But localization is so difficult because of what we've done. And I'll give you an example in New York. I'm assuming it's the same way in Arizona. If you have local state senates, senators, they don't come from a county. They come from a gerrymandered district that's all through the counties. Well, then how can a county have any kind of autonomy? It can't, right? Then look at my assembly. Does that come from, say, each one gets two or three people from the assembly or whatever case, from a county? No, that's also another gerrymandered district that has three, four, five, six counties in it. Well, how can a county have any autonomy? How can a a county have any power as a local entity? Hey, local autonomy, Larry, that would defeat the entire purpose of government, right? Concentrating power and wealth in the hands of the few. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I want to point out something about Larry that, that I love and, and the humility that he brings to uh, being a candidate and what he said about, like, you know, that, that you couldn't have done better than Jorgensen. But I think that a big part of what you're doing, and I want to encourage people to support you with the sharp way and all of your other activism endeavors, is to, like, what, what I'm doing to get ready for 2024 to be, if, if, if I'm going to run again in 24. And I plan to. Uh, I've, I've told my supporters, like, hey, as long as the support keeps growing and, and you want this message represented the way that I'm offering politics, I'll keep running. But in order to, to make that offer to the Libertarian Party as a serious potential candidate for 24, I have to show, as I, I feel like I've been doing, but, you know, can always be better, that localization can be exciting, that what I'm offering can be exciting, that, you know, hey, if, if Texas secedes because Biden's president, hey, we better get the rest of the country on board before it all falls apart. Yeah, but, but Crenshaw might become the uh, the governor. That's a problem. <laughs> now, uh, we have a question from uh, another uh, New Yorker, former New Yorker, uh, like, you know, like you, but he's better now, Peter Yapel, you know. Uh, He used to be from New York, but he's better now. He moved to rural Arizona and is enjoying a lot more freedom as a result. Peter asks, do you believe the party is as unified as we need it to be to finally make a real difference in 22 or 24? If not, how do we find a way to send out a clear and unified message to not seem as the anything goes party that some are afraid of? Um, No, we're not unified, but I don't think we need to be. To be forward with you, I don't think it's required right now, right? In the next, in the coming years, all of the elections really are going to be more local. 
So all I need is for county and state parties to be unified enough to get to get behind either issues and or candidates, not just candidates. I love candidates. I'm all about candidates. But to be forward, I say often our movement isn't only about candidates. Candidates is one part of our movement and an important part. But everything else that we do from ballot initiatives uh, to changing taxes to changing policy to killing laws to you know spotlighting corruption. These are all important things that our movement does. Candidates is one part. When it comes when it comes to unifying, sadly for most of us, candidates are the easiest way to do that, right? So if you have a good candidate, people get behind them. And they go, yeah. well, yeah, I don't like that Adam guy, but we're both behind that other guy, Jim Smith. Jim Smith's great, so I'm going <laughs> to hang out with Adam because I like Jim Smith. Well, I, I think it's worth pointing out there are a lot of forces that want to keep us. From that unity, there, there's, there's yeah. a lot, and, and, and I think Larry's general attitude here is, is really important for the party to embrace. In that, uh, and that, and I know this from my personal experience because I think I got, I got lied to about Larry, and this is, a, you know, just our personal backstory as, as, as friends and fellow activists, you know, within the movement and the LP. That, you know, I learned a lot from my experience with Larry because I was lied to about him. And the, the, just the general, happened. yeah, and just the general attitude. It's over. It never happened. Well, just this general. When you've been, I hope, I hope that less experienced activists in the party can accelerate this process of learning from those of us who have been around a little bit longer. Yes. To, to, to know what to ignore. Yes. And what, what, there's, there, there's, a, there's a by by not ignoring the bullshit. Uh, and the drama, we allow ourselves to be uh, prone to manipulation. So real quick, Jim, uh, any other comments you want to get on screen? I think we covered the important ones from the Producers Club. Gina. I, I want yes, to that that's a very simple thing. Don't let people tell you who to hate. That's the number one thing to remember. And the reason why so many people get mad at me is because I won't hate the other. They want me to hate their guy. You got to hate yeah. that guy. I'm not going to hate him. Well, then you're not one of us. Okay. Larry Sharp then doesn't get endorsed by any, if you notice, I didn't get endorsed by any caucus because I wouldn't hate the other. That was their, that was their, their mandate. You must hate the other. I won't hate the other. Therefore, we can't be with you, Larry. Sorry. That was it. Yeah, no, brilliant perspective. Thank you, Larry. One more question from the audience. Our friend Fina Benoan from Hawaii. Fina, how yeah. are you, my dear? She asks, does Mr. Sharp have any intentions of running for office in 22 or 24? And if so, what office? Um, I'm strongly considering running for governor of New York in 2022. Uh, I'll see how much support I get uh, beginning of next year. I'll make a decision by summer of next year if I'm going to run again. But I'm seriously considering that for 2022. Uh, for 2024, if the right person, I think, is going to be top of the ticket, the same thing I was saying in this one, I would consider a VP slot again. I would. Um, I'm hoping someone who has the, the massive backing, like a, a Justin Amash, if he still stays populist in our, in, in, our, um, in our party and he still does that, I would consider something like that. So I'd consider a VP slot if I think the person is going to be able to make massive impact. If I don't see massive impact, I wouldn't run in 2024. Uh, excellent, excellent. So we've got your websites pulled up. We want to make sure that you get all the appropriate plugs. And I want to point out to everybody that if, if you appreciate Larry Sharp's, uh, Larry Sharp's voice the way that I do in this perspective and his messaging 
everything that he brings to the party, and you want to see him as a representative on the ballot in 22 or 24 doing – because he's, he's not the kind of guy who's going to do a That's it right there. there. A focus on Libertarian Party, that's literally the one I, I did it on. That's it right, All right. there. Yeah. There it is. So support him. Support him as an independent media producer. Support him as part of his active and engaged audience, making these ideas exciting. This is the off-season we're coming into now. People like Larry and I are looking ahead. Um, I'm considering running for U.S. Congress here in Arizona. The, the, it, it's like New York, except we have more freedom. You should consider it, Larry. Uh, but, uh, again, you know, Larry, so what, what can people do to support you uh, just to, to, to help get people excited about these ideas and put you in a better position for 20 Like, comment, and share all my stuff on social media. I'm on all the things. I'm on uh, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, YouTube. I'm on, I have two different brands. One is the Sharp Way, and one is Larry Sharp Libertarian. Larry Sharp Libertarian is a a libertarian brand. That's what it is. Libertarian brand. I often have libertarians on. It's about libertarian things. The Sharp Way is not. The Sharp Way is actually more a brand that's about the middle way. It's about bringing people uh, on who are not libertarians. If you watch any of my Larry Sharp Libertarian shows, it's almost always libertarian. If you watch my Sharpway show, it's almost never libertarian. It's always someone who used to be or might be or a Democrat or Republican. It's someone who's not. And the goal is to to be the recruiter, if that makes any sense, in the Sharpway. Yeah, absolutely. Larry, thanks so much for joining us today. really appreciate your time. Any closing thoughts or anything else you want to say to make this feel complete, please? Semper Fi, brother. <laughs> Rough. <laughs> oh man, that was one of the fantasies that we had going into 2020 uh, for the presidential elections that we'd see a, a Coke S Sharp ticket and two Marines going to take that hill. All right, uh, I lost the uh, connection here for the Producers Club chat for a second. So um, thank you, CJ, for getting those sites up on screen for Larry. We've got just a couple minutes left in the program today. Uh, let's go ahead and get Jim back up on, on screen here and check in. With uh, with Jim, our, our Army veteran co-host, and uh, I don't know. I guess I guess you know when you have a good guest like Larry, we're gonna have to come back and catch up on headlines tomorrow. I had so many today. CJ's gonna be really pissed off. He's like Adam. I pulled up all these freaking links. All he did is talk to Jim and Larry and cover one story. What's wrong with you? Uh, why are you doing this to me? But I think I think that was that was the important story to remind people of the you know the economic perspective of what we're facing with the uh, second wave of, of, uh, of government here. Um, Jim, if I may, before we get to comments, just a couple, you know, ones to, to skim through. Security officials worry Israel and Saudi Arabia may see end of Trump. Is there a ch- chance to go to war with Iran? No, 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 no. If you think Biden is any less a servant of the military-industrial complex, get over yourself. Uh, the Jerusalem Post has this. India, Israel, 30-second coronavirus test in very last stage. We had a th- we had the, the I, I, do you want to call my prick test the thirty second test? Because that's like how long it actually. I don't know. It, but why did it take so long, Jim? You, you can't be the only one like this. Mm. Mm. This has been a thing since February, and you just now have the thirty second version of the test getting out there in the in the last day just in time for the vaccine to get here just in time for the second wave yeah now we're we're getting tested here um like i said actually this is a little update for for sam and i from yesterday is that you know we're getting tested 
uh, by family member request for coming together for Thanksgiving and, and given our family member circumstances, you know, totally reasonable. But uh, it, it's a nightmare. It's, it, it, you know, trying to figure out, oh, can you get tested here? Can you get tested there? Can you, we, have, we have an appointment yesterday, Tuesday, and we're in Seattle right now, uh, Seattle area at least. The soonest appointment, major metro, and remember, Seattle used to be a hotspot because it's close to China. Uh, it's 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 one of the it's it's one of the closest parts of America to China, so it's very vulnerable to the China Wuhan virus. Um, and and no, but Seattle was genuinely a hotspot not that long ago. I can't get it. I can't. I still there's no walk-in testing in this area. I, I had to make an appointment for two days ahead for me and Sam. Yesterday, Tuesday, we made an appointment for tomorrow, Thursday. That's where we're at. Um, this headline I referenced earlier from the Guardian: UK music industry will have in size halve, as in be cut in half in size due to COVID. This is a headline not meant to be read out loud. But uh, UK music industry will have in size due to COVID, says report. Yeah, uh, collapse of live sector. I mean, the, the, but the thing about the testing, sorry to go back, Jim. Um, the fact that for most of this time we've had a two-week turnaround. Oh, the test we're getting is a three-day turnaround. Really? That's ridiculous. After you watched me, you watched me test myself live on, on, on our Facebook months ago with a blood strip prick test. And you go, that's why, why can we not have nice things? Cause government, well, but then you go, mm. I would suggest that they increase the time to suggest validity. It's it, oh, it's a more complex test. These are the legit tests. Those, oh, right. those thirty-second tests are not. They can be falsified, or they're wrong, or they're you know blah blah blah. Our tests take three days because they're so good. They're so yeah. accurate. <laughs> no, and you know, Jim, the and this kind of makes sense. And the, the, scientifically, there might be some exceptions and whatever with this, but. The longer you take, the more chance there is to get it wrong, actually, because you're going to have contamination. And one of the things about the instant test is you're taking the sample from your body directly to the test mechanism, getting a result. With the 14-day test that we've had most of the time, it's a swab in the nose. They put it in a, in a vial. You know, it's a drive-through. Like It's outside. It, you know, then it goes through this administrative shuffle where there's chances it just gets mixed up with other and, and the others, and, the, and there's so many just, it's, you can't look at, anyway, the thing that people are looking at now, another quick headline, dailybeast.com, delusional COVID truthers try to invade a hospital where this mom died too soon. And this is, it's got the tag idiots here. This is like the, uh, you know, film your hospital thing. Now, I don't want to get too, it, it, there's some absurdities in this story, of course, Um but we have an inordinate amount of phone calls that we're receiving every day from the community wanting to know, is your ICU really full? And, again, this is the part of the danger when they have taken something that is real and can be manipulated one way or another. But i got to say, this, this film your hospital thing, especially in the second wave, I, I hope we see, um, yeah, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be infiltrators in this, right? If you're one of the people profiting from coronaphobia altogether, uh, and you go, oh, my God, they're going to go film the hospitals. Let's send a crazy guy to film the hospitals and make them look really silly. 
it's going to happen naturally anyway as, as crazy people are more likely to get swept in something like this. But I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that now there are going to be enough people. And I don't want to be seen as, you know, I, well, yeah, no, I, I don't mind. Yeah, I, I'll be a film your hospital cheerleader. Uh, do it respectfully. Do it peacefully. Do it non-confrontationally. But yeah, when you when 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 you see claims of uh, morgues and ICUs overflowing, let's get some boots on the ground journalists to put a check on this, and let's do it in, in, a, in a now that there's another reason to in this second wave. You know, let's do it in a more uh, you know, measured and precise and uh, respectful and respectable way. But yeah, let's let's keep calling them out on this. Jim, any comments about that? People like, the, the, do you even know anybody who's died? And it's like, well, we all know somebody who's something, but yeah, we all know somebody whose doctor told them they had it, or whose doctor told them they died from it. <laughs> or yeah, with it rather. But I mean, the bottom line is, you know. How how much can you trust? How much of the numbers can you trust? Not much. We all know. Not, Not much. much. Right. Yep. We're over Any time. Do you have any good comments? news for us today? No, everybody was pretty happy with the uh, with the interview. Uh, Peter Yaple was bouncing back and forth, I think, from the Producers Club to the Facebook chat. Nice. <laughs> yeah, Larry's always a fun guest. We have a, we have a good like you know way of interacting, bringing out the best in each other. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, we got we got more headlines to catch up on. I mean, hypocrisy in California, mask mandates, and, and it, it, one of the headlines again, real quick, Prawn.com, the Republican governors who are changing their tunes on masks. Um, so at least for a while, you know, and, and certainly in this transition, it looks like things are going to get a little bit worse uh, before they get better in California. Uh, Californians must mask up outside their homes under new expanded mandate. And what people are freaking out about in California, this next headline, Fox LA, Fox 11 obtains exclusive photos of Governor Newsom at French restaurant, allegedly not following COVID-19 protocols. And it's like, uh, yeah, he actually apologized for this. Um, but at some point you go, this is, this is a, this is a scam. This is a racket. The people in charge don't, like, you're Governor Newsom. If, if you wanted to throw a party where, you know, you could say, well, we broke the rules, but we made an exception because, you know, we made sure that everybody had a mask and was in a bubble and blah, blah. And no, but that's not even close. Uh, so this was a, a Napa dinner party and, uh, you know, totally not following, totally flaunting all of their own rules and regulations. And I, I think yeah. the hypocrisy uh, hopefully can put a check. Like, again, you know, how are they getting away with this? I guess there are enough Americans who are compulsive rule followers. So uh, just to, to wrap this up, Jim, then, before we get to the good news, any comments on, you know, our, our theme question for, for this episode about, you know, how many Americans really are just compulsive rule followers versus breakers? And, you know, now that we're we're all – civil disobedient to some degree or another under COVID, is that, is that affecting the mentality? I mean, and if, if we're just, are we just going along with it again? Or did we not learn anything from, from the March, April shutdowns? And are we going to just be swamped by a second wave of government now? Are we going to be so goddamn un-American as to fall for this again? Well, no, I haven't seen any answers giving any percentages or opinions that very specific question but i mean look look at 
the guy who's who's giving the the orders isn't even following them. So that helps you understand the, the how many people in America. But another the most important thing about about the Newsom thing and his restaurant thing, you have to notice that the the people in authority, if this were actually a health threat, if this were a threat, the people that were making these rules would actually be following them. If they were, you know, we can you see things like this prove beyond a reason beyond a doubt, reasonable doubt, beyond a doubt that they're not afraid. They're going on as life is normal. They are not worried about a single thing, yet they are going on TV and acting as if this is a major threat that we are all killing each other's grandmas over, you know, when obviously we're not because they're acting as if things were normal. And if it was a real health threat, like I said, the high authorities would be acting a lot differently than they are. Yeah, Jim, thank you for pointing that out because I think for a lot of us, we kind of take it for granted. If I can try to boil it down even further, the people in positions of authority who are not following their own guidelines on corona have access to the best data, analysis, scientific information about the virus and what they are doing in their personal lives and the decisions that they make for their health exposure should be something that we follow and pay attention to more than what they're telling us to do, especially when those things are in contradiction to each other and their messages, do as I say, not as I do. Well, why are you doing something different from what you're saying? I'm going to go with you have better access to information than I do because I know you've been keeping information from me, and now I get to see this. And, you know, I, I, it's funny. I mentioned this to my mom yesterday, and she was like, did you see the thing about Pelosi in the salon? And it was like, yeah, those, those kinds of moments of hypocrisy do stick with people. I hope the American people can really internalize that and learn the lessons and stop re-electing idiots. And I don't say idiots. They're assholes. They're not idiots. They know what they're doing. All right, Jim. Thank you so much for that. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Check in with the audience. And as CJ is saying in the Producers Club, we're going to have to have a tab-clearing session soon. I agree. So to the good news, goodnewsnetwork.org for this day in history. It was 155 years ago today. Mark Twain's first successful short story, Jim Smiley and His Jumping Frog, was published in the New York Saturday Press, his first great success as a writer, which brought him national attention. Yes, dear. And apparently, it was it was a repurposed, re-owned, re-treaded story, as, as my wife is pointing out here. That's, that's in here, babe. It says, in the story, the narrator retells a story he heard from a bartender about the gambler, Jim Smiley. Uh, quote, if he, uh, if he even seen a straddle bug start to go anywhere, he would bet you how long it would take him to get to wherever he was going. If you took him up, he would follow that straddle bug to Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> the story was developed further as the celebrated drunken jumping frog of Calaveras County which was also the title story of Twain's first book. All right. The more good news on this day, he was on this day in 1883. The five standard continental time zones were instituted by U.S. and Canadian railroads to end the confusion of thousands of local times. Now, this is actually a really good piece of good news because it reminds us that even though government today claims to be able to control the time through daylight saving, resulting in a surge in suicides every year. It was the railroads that came together to standardize time zones in the, in, in, in the, on the continent. So, 
Yeah, we, we didn't we didn't need government to control the time or to build consensus. In fact, when it comes to building consensus, the only thing governments can do is force you into it, not build a legitimate one by consent. Is any of those words kind of go together? Consent, consensus. Mickey Mouse, on this day in 1928, first appeared on the big screen in the first Disney production with synchronized sound. The animated film Steamboat Willie, starring a cartoon mouse drawn and voiced by animator Walt Disney, which eventually became the company's famous mascot. And I can't stop thinking about bats and pangolins in the South Park pandemic special. <laughs> if you haven't seen it yet, check out the South Park pandemic special. Watch it with Sam and Mom yesterday. On this day in 1918, Latvia declared its independence from Russia. Uh, on the happy 52nd birthday, the screenwriter and actor Owen Wilson. Um, not going to, uh, yeah, okay, happy birthday. On this day in 1984, the Soviet Union worked with the U.S. to deliver eight shipments of American wheat to Ethiopia during the famine. Uh, sad that that happens through government. Good news that it happens. On this day in 1989, 50,000 Bulgarians took to the streets demanding political reform. On this day in 1991, Terry White, a Christian who was kidnapped after negotiating the release of other British hostages was finally released by the Islamic Jihad Organization. After 1,763 days, the first four years of which were spent in solitary confinement. Islamic Jihad Organization. Remember what they tried to get us to be afraid of in 1991? The terrorists of the 90s. Team America. Go Team America. Fuck yeah! On this day in 1993, South Africa's 21 political parties approved a new constitution. Eh, good or bad, I don't know. Certainly better than apartheid. On this day in 2003, the UK repealed the controversial anti-gay amendment that barred schools from portraying gay relationships as anything other than abnormal. On this day in 2003, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled 4-3 to three that state, the state constitution guarantees gay couples the right to marry. Good news in and of itself. Good news for gays. Good news for, can we call them gays? Is that the gays? What? The gays. That's, that's homophobic, isn't it? No, no. The gays. No, All right. The no, it's the one. Is this how you know that I'm not gay, that I can't do, the, I can't do the one? My wife is coaching me into homophobia right now. Uh, no, but this is. The, <laughs> Okay, LGBTQ culture includes the snap, according to my wife. She wouldn't know. All right, but the the Massachusetts Supreme Court rules that the state constitution guarantees gay couples the right to marry. Very tempting to see this as simple, straightforward good news, right? But isn't it horrifically bad news if we affirm that our rights come from a court and a constitution and their immediate political pandering interpretation of it rather than from our human nature, from God, from our spiritual core as human beings, that that is enough to guarantee our rights, that they don't come from authority. And with that being said, if you want to support this most important message of freedom, com. check out our Patreon, give us $10 a month, be a part of the Producers Club. You see how much fun it is every day to be a part of this conversation, making the show happen. And of course, you get a discount, 15% off and free shipping at our store, another Great way to support the show through AdamVersusTheMan.com. And, of course, our affiliate is there as well, CigarFederation.com, where promo code ADAM10, A-D-A-M-1-0, gets you 10% off your order so you can join us for Cigars and Sunsets every Friday. 
and make them debate.com. Check out my profile there. Mercedes would appreciate the help. By the way, uh, there was some chat chatter in uh, the producers club earlier today that people want to see me debate Larry Sharp as Adam loves the man. That could be a lot of fun. You want to see Larry Sharp debate the most offensive statist militarist veteran possible? It's possible. We can make it happen. Make them debate.com. Check it out. And with that, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace and love y'all. Choose happiness and be excellent to each other. 